Welcome, listeners, to Time for an Awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge, but we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. With all that, getting an understanding again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com which is the home page and catch the live stream from that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Dot com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. Uh, the radio app is free. And in that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream or the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In that Facebook search engine, just type in time for an awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or, or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page. Just hit that like button. That's time for an awakening radio program. With the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is there always full of the latest podcast of the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times and share with your friends. Also check out that time for an awakening marketplace in our partnership with the BB to me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. It's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Sunday evening, and we're in the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening radio program. Our guest this evening, activist, author, African Esquire, TV host, Sister Tyranny Cherie, will be joining us her new book, Fostering False Identity, the American Child Welfare System's Design of Social Control of the Black Family. 
will be the topic of conversation while she's with us this evening. It ought to be interesting dialogue, and you can always get involved in the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. Again, that's 215-490-9832. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444 That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human 
geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at 713 here in the city of Philadelphia. And before we get started with our program, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Arch Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm looking forward to our uh, conversation with uh, Sister Tyranny around her book. You know, it's, you know, but, uh, I, I was debating, should I say, Elliot, uh, um, before we get into the interview, is that, um, you know, the book Fostering False Identity, the Child Welfare System Design of Social Control of the Black Family, I can say I probably... I carry it and I uh, can say I know it very intimately, um, being one basically almost raised on the welfare system um, and being um, the oldest of eight. And me and my sister is only a year apart. And after that, it's every other, it's every, one every year. And my mother had me at 13. So in Philadelphia, um, the welfare system, you, you, I got to see the evolution of this system um, to where you had to, I mean, we, it was like a regiment, you know, um, making sure you had certain things that couldn't be shown because when the caseworkers, and at that point, they were social, what's that? they had master's degree in sociology. So when they came through the house, the, um, usually a, a white male and a white female, they came looking to see if you had anything beyond what you were supposed to have in there. And my mother being an eighth grade dropout um, with eight children. And, you know, it, 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 it leaves something because for her, you can see her constant fear was the possibility of her, of her children being taken from her. So um, sister tyranny's book, fostering false identity um, and this whole thing of the, you know, child welfare system and going through it, um, it really, because it is, you can see this, the mechanism of controlling the black family, the intent. And the block I lived on, um, which was a small block, most of the women who lived on there, I think it was only one family that had a father in the house. Two, excuse me. So I, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, as I went through the book, it, it um, and to, to at this stage, um, it's it really I, I have to commend her for the work that she did in putting in this and and bringing out. And I hope the time for awakening audience really get to understand um, what the sister is saying in this book that it is a mechanism of control of the black family, and for what end? Well, listen, Richard. I mean, you you said that you came up with personal experience of this system. Um, we can say now that in 2021 that 
a lot of our families, uh, whether extended families or direct families, uh, this system is involved somewhat or somehow in their lives um, to, you know, looking at Sister Tierney's book and the information that she compiled, I think uh, the uh, the way she gets in, gets involved and uh, really explains the intricacies of what's going on, it'll really be interesting to our audience to really not, not only find out what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, the, the uh, puppet master behind the curtain, but to find out why this is going on. It, it, it mm-hmm. was, was a really interesting work that she did. And for the time that we have her on, uh, I'd like her to cover as much as she can. And uh, even if we got to uh, uh, make another date for her to come back, it would be good to uh, discuss this issue fully. Uh, let's uh, bring our guest in, activist, author, and African Esquire TV host, Sister Tyranny Cherie is with us. The book, Fostering False Identity, the American Child Welfare System's Design of Social Control of the Black Family. Sister Tierney, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for being with us. Sister Tierney, so you, I know that you heard Richard uh, talk about his personal experience with the child welfare yes. system. Um, my experience was the exact opposite. I mean, I had two, uh, grew up with uh, both a mother and father, uh, very active in the community, uh, activists themselves. So I, re- I had a real healthy background, uh, and I was lucky maybe because all of my friends that I uh, was around uh, growing up, uh, they both had both parents in the home. So it was a real village uh, in my particular neighborhood uh, helping all the families. But, uh, you know, knowing uh what Richard is talking about is something that we're all familiar with. But talk about mm-hmm. um, your experience writing this book, the information that you compiled, and even why you did it at this particular time. Sure. So um, for the past three years, I just recently transitioned into a different area of law, but I've been an attorney representing children in abuse and neglect litigation. And um Going into that field, you know, it was always my intention to become a lawyer for the sole purpose of helping my people. Um, but what I came to see is that the system of child welfare is one that kind of dies as being something that's helpful to our community. In reality, when you look at the impact that it has on families, African families, you see a lot of family separation that really is just a stigmatization of people who have issues um, that are sometimes very legitimate issues, but the remedy is never um, family separation because ultimately whenever a child is put into the foster care system, that child is being introduced to a world of danger that they would not otherwise have had to deal with. So having witnessed this um, and then also having learned about some instances in my own family history, dealing with the child welfare system, I really felt like it's an area that we don't really cover as a people. A lot of us are aware of the prison industrial complex. A lot of us are aware of how the education system is jacked up, but a lot of us are not either not aware or not um, organized in a way that we can adequately discuss the issue of child welfare. Um, A big reason of this, I think, is that 
there is a lot of stigmatization against um, parents because the assumption is that if you have a child and involved with social services, you must have done something wrong. And of course, we never want to see a child harmed. Um, but a lot of times you don't even have to do anything wrong, as Brother Richard just said, just having been in a situation where you're vulnerable, where you don't have supports, where um, the state can just come in and um, just say that your family is in need of regulation because you're a danger to us, that a lot of times is enough to have a situation where um, you can be involved inside of the child welfare system. So I really wanted to get into the history of it. I wanted people to see that this is a racist system. It is a, race, a racist system in that it was created for a specific purpose of oppressing people um, who are non-white. And it makes perfect sense when you look at the results that we see as far as our families. So I think this is an issue that we really do have to organize around if we're going to protect our children from um, this type of state intervention. Sister Tanny, um, you know, I, I think if our people could, I, I, I looked at the introduction of the book and uh, you mentioned about uh, in the first part of the introduction, a quote from Kwame Ture about uh, when we came to this country as black men uh, from Africa and it took 400 years for us to become Negroes. Um, I, I think if we, and some of our people don't want to look at situations like they are, but if you look at all of the areas since we've been here in this country, it's all about control of black people, black families, mm -hmm. black men. It's, it's all about control, just about every aspect of life, uh, whether it was from the plantation to, to Jim Crow to, to uh, 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 proliferating these communities with drugs, the joblessness. It's all about controlling and funneling black people into certain areas uh, if some of our people escape and end up in another, another strata of life, uh, those are the ones that got out. But the majority of our yeah. people are caught up in a vicious cycle. And from what you state, this child welfare system is one of them where our children are taken, put in, in uh, other surroundings for the purpose of basically introducing other thought patterns to them. Uh, am I off base in saying that? No, you are completely on target as far as what the system is actually for. So the way that the system was created, child welfare in America is actually something that is not too old in, in, the, in that the state traditionally did not get involved with the affairs of people's families. Um, the idea was that you basically are in charge of your household, and so we're not going to tell you what to do. That really changed whenever there was an influx of immigration into the United States from um, from Europe and different different parts of Europe that are not Anglo-Saxon. So when you had the Jews coming over, when you had um, Italians coming over, Irish, obviously, um, these are groups that originally were not considered white inside of America, even though today we consider them white. When you had this influx of immigration come into play in the late uh, 19th century, essentially the white Anglo-Saxon class um, found ways to control that population. And the way that they did that was by using a child welfare system that they created for regulating 
poverty, regulating these immigrant families. So you, what you've seen is something called the Child Savers Movement, which was a movement where you had these people who were essentially, in modern day context, we would look at them as caseworkers, but they were people who said that they were there to save children. They would roam the streets, and if they found any child who was on the streets, um, any 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 child who was roaming, it could have been that the parent was just at work. It could have been that um, the parent, um, you know, was just right around the corner. If they found you and they concluded that you you were um, basically a child that was going that was going in their mind neglected, they would take you, and they could put you inside of reformatories. They could uh, do something else called there was an orphan train movement where essentially they put all these children on trains and sent them out west. Um, and this was all done to regulate poverty, because of course the white dominant class was always nervous about the potential of these poor immigrants coming to the city, having a riot and having um, some type of rebellion against the conditions that they were living in. So when you understand that's the basis of the creation of the system, it makes a lot of sense when you see how it's applied to other people who aren't white and more in a more extreme way. And it all comes together, I think, for our people to see that this is a system that is intrinsically racist. Sister Tenney, uh according to the information you compiled in the book, uh, black folks didn't wasn't really the focus of the child welfare system, or maybe not even involved really to a large degree until the to, to 1960s. Um, yeah. Now, I got my own... Uh, idea to why and i'll tell it to you and you tell me if i'm off base and then just explain why the focus became on black families from 1960 on i think personally that the focus came on the black family and black young people because in the 60s you had uh two movements going on almost simultaneously the black power movement and black civil rights movement going on mm-hmm. during that period where young people were involved in these things and, and, and especially some of the leadership of these movements for young men themselves and young women. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, am I off base in saying that that's why a lot of things started focusing in on the black family after that period or, or what you tell me? No, I think you're, I think you're right on target. Um, so what essentially uh, changed everything as far as child welfare was, um, the the situation of uh, the states that are in the South basically wanting to keep Black families from accessing um, social welfare programs, so the social net social welfare programs that are supposed to be safety nets for families. They wanted to keep Black women away from those. They wanted to keep them white, uh, which is ironic today because when we think of welfare, you know, we're told it's a Black issue, but really welfare was created for white women. Well, whenever they um, created this um, program, um, one of the ways that they were able to try to keep black women from accessing it was to say that um, we're going to put these stipulations that basically you have to have a suitable home. And a suitable home meant that you um, had to have a certain lifestyle. You couldn't have a a male in a home. There's all these types of stipulations they put on that. Well, whenever a man named Arthur Fleming, who was um, the head of the department of Pew at the time, he, he said that, well, if you're going to say that these homes aren't suitable, then that means that you should be removing these children, not just saying that we're going to deny you some welfare. Well, the South responded by saying, okay, let's remove all these children. 
So that's really where we first started going into the child welfare system. Um, thousands of children were removed just on the basis of trying to avoid giving women, black women access to welfare. But what we've seen come after that was, as you said, the, the um, black power movement and the civil rights movement. And one thing that we should understand about that is that the white dominant class, when they were dealing with these racial rebellions, they were trying to figure out the best way to address it and the best way to pacify that resistance. So when um, Moynihan, Daniel, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, he wrote a report for President Johnson saying that uh, the black family is a, is a structure of, weak, of weakness and even spoke about and advocated in his report that we can put black children in, into foster care. Um, I believe that was a real, um, a, a real weapon that would be used against the black family because ultimately the children, you know, if we're, if you're children of resistance, you're probably even more of a threat than the adults because children are useful. Children, um, they have a certain fervent um, thing about them that I think is very threatening, even whenever you're talking about a black child. So I definitely agree with you. I believe that that is absolutely um, relevant and significant to why black families became overrepresented during that time. Richard. Well. Yeah, you know, now, Sister Tierney, I'm, I'm going to uh, approach, and some of the stuff that I, I, I was thinking as I was going through the book that, you know, um, in the um, conversation you and Elliot had, may have touched on, but it's other things, and I'm going to say, starting off with, um, you, 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 you not only did a good analysis, you got a good story going on here in, in the opening, and that I, I thought that the story of Donnie was, um, and I ain't no literary crit, uh, critic, but it was done nicely. So I have Thank to you. ask, is writing, uh, you know, beyond analysis, writing a thing that you do, um, besides, um, your, your activist work and, and other things? You know, I've always one, I've always enjoyed writing. I've always loved it. Um, but you know, this is actually my first um, you know, formal, you know, project. But um, it's, honestly, I was, um, when I was a child, I, w- I was prophesied over that I was going to be a writer. And so I've, because of that, I've always had in my mind that I was going to write someday. Um, so as far as, although the book is for the most part um, nonfiction, um, I've always kind of experimented with the idea of doing fiction work also. And so I was able to kind of tap into that for the introduction. Although the introduction is based on a true story, um, you know, you have to, I guess, paint the picture a little bit more vividly so that people can completely understand the gravity of that type of situation. And and, and vividly you did. I just wanted to make sure um, the listening audience, um, the reason, why, another reason why they should pick up the book, because um, I think it really gives a... Um, a good narrative and and it sets the analysis up, which was the second part of the book that I like. And and you kind of you kind of did a couple a lot of good things in it, like and, and um really applying the system, applying the thought process of systems thinking. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that that was um um a, a really important and I and the reason why I think that's important because I think that. In order for us to understand institutional racism, um, what you bring out in the book as it relates to the child welfare system, we have to um, become more, um, do more systems analysis. And I want I want you to um, define that later. And because the other thing that I liked, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna, you know, just go into that. But the other thing that I like, and I hope we 
are able to touch that now or later is chapter eight in relationship to the solutions. Um, yes. How you develop that and um, recognizing where the work you're doing made me um, have to ask, does, and I believe um, the other work that you're organizing work, you were also a founding member of, is it We Charge Genocide? We Charge Colonialism. Colonialism. Inspired, yes, inspired by We Charge Genocide, um, mm-hmm. as far as the title, absolutely. Um, so I, I just... It just made um, sense that this, um, the, the, the way you lay out um, in defining, you know, the identity um, issue. So let me ask you that to start off, because it was another, which was a more little technical. Why did you feel important to make it clear that African be um, clearly defined as you went through this um, dealing with the child welfare system? That we are. Well, I think it, yes, I think it's our best way to fight uh, white supremacy and when you're talking about the child welfare system um, a, 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 a vital part of the creation of that system was not just removing them from in which originally were European um, children from their families but bringing them into whiteness and documenting them making them um, lose their cultural identity this is something that was also done to the Native Americans and that they were stripped of their culture whenever the United States government decided that they were gonna have a focus on assimilating them. I think the thing that we can learn from Native American communities is that they recognize that this is an assault on our people. Assimilation is not a a passive act, it's an act of warfare. You're trying to tell me I can't um, be be the who I am. You're trying to tell me that I cannot wear my hair in my traditional way. I cannot speak in my traditional tongues. I cannot practice, you know, my traditional, um, you know, my, my my traditional things values. So that's really a, a attack on on the sovereignty of a people. And what the Native Americans did in response is they began to organize. They really did in the in the Red Power Movement, which was inspired by the Black Power Movement. They really did have a rallying call that we're going to take ownership of our culture and use that as a way to save our children. And I think in some ways it was very effective. So when we're talking about the people saying that the child welfare system should not have jurisdiction over African children, the necessity is that we identify as African because what has been used by this government and other uh, forces in the society as a justification for them taking types of actions to take our children and remove them from our communities is that um, being a black child in a white home, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, being black in America, you are just, you're basically just the same as a white person. Your skin is just different. Um, you don't have a different culture. You have no culture of your own. No, your culture is just American culture. These are the things that are actually, we're, we're told these are positive things, but they're really tools of warfare because they really make us think that it is, there's something wrong with being African and with practicing our culture and with, with identifying with our homeland. So I, I really wanted to hammer that point that I think uh, awareness of an African identity for our people is the only way we can appropriately deal with a system that was created to assimilate our children into whiteness. And so that's really why I focus on African identity. And and and, and it's further um, what you you really um, encapsulated, and I understand in chapter three, um, forced assimilation of Native Americans and resistance. You, you kind of develop that, you know, make sure 
that we understand who actually go through um, your analysis, understand how that took place. So I, again, uh, I would like to encourage people to um, get to Satirini's book on fostering false identity. Now I have to ask this because uh, I'm, I'm a lover of this, even if I can't apply it. You make it clear that we should be analyzing systems. Um, yeah. And, you know, and that, and that, and, and three questions came to my mind, and hopefully they're not over overbearing. And Elliot, hopefully I'm not taking up too much time. I just um, thought that <laughs> she did. No, take your time. Go ahead. <laughs> so well. So could you define systems for us? Um, and what is a systems analysis? And why yeah. does it relate to child welfare? Well, a system is composed of many parts that are basically working together towards a goal. And when we're talking about systems analysis, the reason why I wanted to emphasize this as far as the child welfare system is because there are different institutions of racism that can tell us that they exist for a certain reason. So the education system might tell you that we're actually here to educate your children. Forget the results. Forget the fact that your children are given a horrible education and, um, you know, basically indoctrinated to a degree. Forget that. We're here for that. And that's what you're supposed to accept. The criminal injustice system really uh, can go out there and say that it is created to ensure public safety and to reform the criminal, that's what they might say. Well, is that really what they're doing? No. (laughs) You know, we know that they're really um, continuing on the legacy of slavery and just finding of ways to coat that agenda. So systems analysis says that, okay, we have this system that's functioning for a purpose, but we're not gonna take the purpose that the system tells us that it's here for. Instead, we're gonna look at the outcomes of that system. So you're going to look at, in the case of the education system, what are the actual outcomes for black children or black children really being educated? With the criminal justice system, are people really being reformed? Are people really being brought back into society? Is the public actually safer? And so with the child welfare system, they tell us that they're there for the safety and the welfare and well-being of children. So is that actually what's happening? Are children safer because of the child welfare system? Um, are children... Um, is their well-being has their well-being improved as a result of this system? If you look at the actual statistics surrounding the system, the data surrounding the system, it just shows a really bleak picture. That no, that's absolutely not what's occurring. Um, now, the other thing about systems analysis is that it really calls us to go back into the history to find of, of the original reason why the system was created, but also how is the system reinforcing itself? Meaning, is it still producing that result? So as you said, the child welfare system was originally created because of the um, the regulating of poor immigrant families. Has that uh, feedback, has the feedback loop broken? And no, it hasn't. It's always been there for that particular purpose. And so I say that with a systems analysis, we can address the system for what it is. We're not addressing it for what they tell us it is. We're addressing it for what we actually see. And I think it's common sense if you think about it. When you think about systems that are built to benefit white people. Um, if, if that system is not creating the outcome that benefits white society, they change it. They don't continue a system that's not working for them. If Wall Street was not doing what it was supposed to be doing for the billionaires and the millionaires, do you think they would allow um, that system that they created to continue on in a way that they have set it up? No, like they would, they would change it. 
So clearly, if the system of child welfare is really having a detrimental effect on black children, I mean, just as far as services, the services they receive are horrible. They're more likely to be separated from their families. They're more likely to have their parents' parental rights terminated. They're more likely to have um, be reported just being in a hospital for um, random things from doctors. Like there's so many things that are adversely affected to us. A systems analysis allows us to say that these are not accidental traits of the system. This is actually very intentional. So I think that is the, the best way for us to address a system of, um, of racism. I, I, I couldn't, I, you know, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And it's something that as we move more and more into an engineered technological society, it becomes more and more um, important for us, it seems, to be able to have to look at things from a systems approach more than, um, as you say, you know, just that it's a happenstance or that it's, um, you know, some phenomenon that uh, just occurred out of nowhere. Um, and I, and you mentioned about prisons, but I want to come back because in the book you um, did um, develop something that I thought was interesting, another interesting point. But, um, and you may have spoke to this in this question. So how does institutional racism play out? in the child welfare system. Again, you may have developed it already, but it's, do, do we really understand how it plays out? Yeah. So the way it plays out is that, first of all, one thing I think people should know with the child welfare system, because again, I think the, the idea that people have in their minds is that these are children that are being abused. 61% of children in the child welfare system are actually there for what they call neglect. And that neglect has nothing to do with physical abuse or sexual abuse or anything like that. Neglect is actually a crime of poverty. You could be charged with neglect because um, you had to work and you had to leave your child, you know, um, with a neighbor watching them. Or you could be uh, charged with neglect because you didn't have enough food in the house. You could be charged with neglect for reasons that really relate to you just not having the money to afford childcare, the money to afford food, the money to afford housing. These are things that they will take your children for. Only about 12% of children in the child welfare system are actually there for being abused. And that's something that goes completely contrary to our idea of why this system exists. So um, if, we're, if we're starting from there, then we can kind of see that, okay, this is actually a system that's here to regulate poverty. And you consider that African people in America, we have been the most um, attacked by this government as far as systemic racism whether it was enslavement, whether it was Jim Crow, whether it was the prison industrial complex, whether it was redlining, the government has made intentional efforts to keep our people very suppressed. And the results do produce issues. You know, our people are traumatized. Our people have been harmed so, so much that you do have a situation where we are in, um, left basically with our children, um, not having the structures that we traditionally had to take care of them. And what the system does is they step in and say, well, you know, if you're if you're going to be dealing with these issues on your by yourself, then we're basically going to have to step in and take those children from you. So I would look at the child welfare system very much as a complementary system to other systems that exist, particularly the criminal and justice system. I think when you um, think about that, when you think about the uh, welfare as far as monetary. Um, assistance the government is supposed to give you. Um, you think about the systems that fail, and because these systems fail, black children are basically 
not given the structure that they should be given. And at that point, they become a threat to the government, not just because of the potential that these children will engage in some type of crime, but ultimately, as we spoke about earlier, the potential that they'll engage inside of some revolutionary activity. I think the other thing that's very telling is that one of the um, very um, prominent, um, not founders of the child welfare system, but the one who really started the orphan train movement where they were taking these children and sending them out west, um, he was very clear that his motivation was social anxiety. He was afraid what was going to happen with these children roaming around, they would join gangs, and he even said they would engage in revolutionary activity. So I would look at the child welfare system as a system that is reactionary, basically, to the issues that this society created. The society is not willing to undo what it has done to our people. Instead, they're willing to um, do what they look at as damage control, that is separating our children from us so that we, uh, so that our children are not poised as a threat to the social order. And, and, and Elliot, um, as you've seen, um, the sisterity um, in the book, and, and, and I have to again say to the Time for Awakening audience, um, one thing that she does um, is not, is, as you heard in her explanation, give a lot of statistical support and, and academic support in relationship to the claim that she's making, the, op, the, the, op, the systems analysis that she's providing. And one thing that, and, and, it, and, it, and it struck me, I have to say, because um, I was looking at the um, Pennsylvania number on page 44, if, if we can, uh, y'all can indulge me for these two paragraphs um, in, a, in, in the book, um, Fostering False Identity. In 2013, while African children made up 5.4% of California population, they made up 19.6% of foster care population. In Pennsylvania, while Africans composed only 13% of the population, they, compro- they compose, comprise 41.6% of the foster care population. In New Jersey, while African children made up only 13% of the population, they made up 41.5% of the foster care population. In Illinois, in, um, while African made up uh, 15% of the population, they comprise 51, um, 51.4% of the foster care population. Um, yeah. When you came across those numbers, uh, and I don't know in the process of you doing the research, how did that, and, and, it, and, and you go on and give more, but how did that impact you to see hmm. that, that disparity? You know, when you work in the system every day, it, it wasn't um, terribly surprising because you do see, I mean, um, one, one writer, um, Dorothy Roberts, she says that the child welfare system is like a system of apartheid. When you're going throughout the courts, you see Black families lining the halls. So it wasn't um, terribly surprising, but I I did, I I think the one that probably got me the most, um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but um, looking at New York City and Chicago. Yeah, um, Cook County, yeah. uh, Yeah, yeah, I mean, Cook County. And I was actually, um, when I did my master's in, in the law program I actually did it in Chicago um and I do remember like there was like a heavy heavy concentration of African children um in that particular city but I also know that that city um like every city but the city in Chicago in particular they have a very unique history 
um, of just systemic racism and just the attacks on African people just being so blatantly um, and so so masterfully constructed to ensure control of those communities. So um, I, I think that it's very telling whenever we look at the how this how the government you know that's probably the biggest takeaway we could have is that. Um, the government created these issues, you know, whenever you're looking at different locations and understanding that there's a real causal link between the history our people have suffered and the, the overrepresentation of our children in child welfare, we understand that this is a problem that was created by the state. So the only way that we can address it is to um, address it as a people who understand that the state is not our friends and that we can only rely on our ability to pull away from such um, such efforts that have just really just devastated our people um, for a long time. Hey, hey Ella, you got to hear this number for it. I mean, and I hope that we we really can, I, it, for me, for, when, um, Sister Tierney brought up about um, Chicago and Cook County. In 2011, while Africans made up 26% of the population of Chicago, Cook County, they composed 76% of the foster care that that means most of the children that are are born in cook county are a part of the foster care system Mm. i mean mean, when you say apartheid i mean i just when i seen these numbers and i was looking at pennsylvania you know um people don't recognize you know kind of see that and that's 13 percent and you're talking about 40 something percent in 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 almost half, um, mm-hmm. and, and you only have two major cities in Pennsylvania: yeah. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. So that was, and I'll, I'll uh, because I, um, as you can see, and I, 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 we can come back to it. I have um, in going through um, your 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 text, your analysis, and and your work, um, it just raised and and possibly because of my um, intimate relationship. Um, with the system itself, it, it raised so many um, powerful questions. So I'll, I'll, I'll and you know, and Elliot, and pass it back over to you. In the sense of, um, at some point, you said, um, and I'm asking the question: What do you mean about the power relationship between those who serve and those who are provided, being providing and uh, providing the service? Is that those? Yeah. Who, you know, what did, what did you, what did you, you know, can you help us, you know, break, break that out of, of, of that? Because I think that was important too. Yeah. Can you actually read the whole sentence? I'm trying to recount. Uh, uh, <laughs> the power relationship between those who are served and those who are providing the service. And I think okay, you were talking yeah. about those who are, who actually work um, to provide the service, who they are and, and, and how it pro- provides a, a lot of uh, income, but it is also a power relationship. Yes. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, um, child welfare is a business, honestly. Um, there are a lot of people who are involved. But like, like I said, I myself was an attorney. I represented children um, inside of the system. You have caseworkers. Um, you have uh, service providers. Um, you know, there's, there's so much money inside of this. And then there's other elements of money coming into play, Um for example, there's um, the situation of the fact that once a child is in state custody, the state can apply for more funds from the government for that child because they are technically the child's parent. So they could try- apply for uh, SSI benefits. 
although the benefits are supposed to go to the child, they can go to uh, Children's Family Services. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Um, there's that, it's, it's, it's a real heavy issue. Even situations um, where, like, let's say um, a parent um, leaves, you know, some, uh, some uh, what is it, the military benefits to their child, and let's say they pass away. Mm-hmm. There's, there's been situations where the child doesn't even get to access them um, because the state literally has stepped in and said, well, we're the parents, so we take care of the child, so let's take it for ourselves. So this, this is a business, you know, in every single sense. Um, so there is a real benefit to society, like we see with all systemic racism, um, because like the prison industrial complex, obviously it serves a problem of, uh, 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 it serves the purpose of keeping African men uh, and women um, under state control and ensuring mm-hmm. that they are not poised as a threat to the society. But it also is a business. It also has a lot of private interests. We see a lot of people who their whole lifestyle is just built on or um, their whole well-being, rather, is, is built on the fact that this system exists. So we should look at child welfare, I think, the same way. You know, but she made a, a, a beautiful correlation between the child welfare system and, and the um, prison system when we start talking about the increase in prison is how the effect that has on the children. You know, mm-hmm. you, you, you mentioned in, um, on page 42, you have right at the top, let me read this. And, and this coincides with what you just mentioned to Richard. Uh, you said the uh, foster care is a big. Hold on one second. I'm sorry. Foster care is a billion dollar business. Craig Hubert estimated in 1997 that publicly funded foster care costs American taxpayers 12 billion uh, in one year. Foster care. Uh, and per child, 17500 Group home foster care per child in 1994 cost $36,500. And institutional placements in some states per child cost $42,000 per child mm-hmm. per year. Mm-hmm. Cost since 1997 has only risen, as ABC News reported in 2006. Despite more than a decade of intended reform, the nation's foster care system is still overcrowded and full of problems, but taxpayers are spending $22 billion a year or 40000 a child on the foster care program. Um, mm-hmm. Sister Tierney, some of these figures here are from the 1990s, and it has only risen since. But mm-hmm. if you look at what... Um, the white power structure has done to the black family. Richard talked about uh, when he was young boy, he was in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. The thing that was there for Richard was his mother, even though she was a young mother from what Richard describes, she was there for her family. This system realized that, well, even though we've done a lot to black families We've done a lot to black men where they can't get jobs uh, where they'll start drinking or some of them that are weak get hooked on drugs and then they're out of the family dynamic. So we'll help that along. We'll throw a stick of dynamite in there and cause the women that are even still attached to the family to just be out there. So they introduce crack in black neighborhoods and not only destroy 
it just destroys the family because then the women are out of the family dynamic then and the children are just left to be part of what we see here uh cannon fodder uh part of this multi-billion dollar business where they shifted around and and basically made uh made money off of and then when they finish the uh the child welfare system they envision those same children to be part of the prison industrial complex. This is a vicious cycle, and we have to do something to alleviate this pressure from our children. Um, I, I know the time might be limited this evening because of, of uh, 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 family constraints, but talk about some of the solutions that we can start implementing, maybe in our own family and maybe community organizations where we can reach out and help some of these children that don't have uh, maybe the proper meals at home, because just like you said, a lot of them are not being physically abused. Uh, they might not be able to eat breakfast in the morning. They go to school hungry, and then the teachers see it. Then all of a sudden they report it to child welfare, and then they're involved mm-hmm. in your home. Uh, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, go ahead, Sister Tenney. Yeah. Yeah, I think that we have to look back, and this is another aspect, I think, of uh, African identity, we have to look back at who we are um, as a people, because we're a people of self-help. We're a people of um, of cooperative economics and cooperative living, communal living, and that has been what has allowed us to survive this horrible experience in America. When you look at what happened to Africans when they were enslaved in America, um really those who were able to survive, particularly after they were emancipated, um, they survived by relying on each other because the state seriously wasn't going to do anything for them. Obviously they were never supposed to be free. And so they had to rely on each other. They had to build together. They had to use each other for taking care of children and for uh, economic woes that would occur. And that's really who we are as a people. So the solution to me isn't, necessarily something that government um, should have an active role in. I think that in an ideal in an ideal world, you know, the government would um, put up the money, you know, obviously big about reparations, put up the money for us to do what we want to do for our people. That would be an ideal world. Um, I don't have necessarily trust that the government would do that um, to allow us to mend our condition. But, you know, that's that's another issue. But regardless of what the government does, we have to go back to what we know. Um, the big thing that I really advocate in the book is mutual aid. And there's the, there's a history of our people of doing these things. Yes. Um, even when you look at the Black Panther Party, you know, we, we, there's a lot of discussion going about that, obviously, because of the Fred Hampton movie. Um, these are people who are able to see the issues in the community and address them. They saw the issue of child care and they had child care centers. They had they saw the issue of free breakfast um, being an issue, so they created that. We have to have similar setups. Um, otherwise, if we're relying on this government to do right by us, then having had the knowledge of having an, uh, an experience in this country long enough to know that they will not, um, you know, we're really leaving ourselves up to our oppressor and our enemy to do the right thing. So I think mutual aid and finding ways to build a child welfare system controlled by us, um, that's our only solution to these problems. Sister Tierney, the, um, with the advent of uh, 
Well, well, before I, I deal with something that uh, is kind of off topic, let's um, now. I don't know. You have to help me with this because I do know that if a young child is disruptive in a school setting, so to speak, and the teacher um, reports this, um, sometimes the teacher can suggest that the child uh, take some type of medication where they can be calm in class. Uh, Is that part of child welfare also to make diagnosis and to prescribe medications? I don't know. You Help me in, in, in that. Uh, I think mental health issues is very relevant to child welfare, um, not necessarily in the way that special education is done, but really, um, you know, but similarly, honestly, like if you look at like the way that children are brought into the education system and now you have outsiders who are putting diagnoses on them, similarly, whenever you're put inside of state custody, Again, the state has, um, they're the parents. So whoever is the one that's stepping into the situation, whoever's going to be around the child, they can identify issues with the child. So you can have the same type of situation where you might have um, drugs being pushed on a child um, for their quote-unquote betterment. But really, you know, it could be the, the same issue that you see inside of the special education there, and that is um, over-identifying children with things that they do not have. So, yeah, and I think the the takeaway for that, too, is the, is the same as education, is that whenever you're reliant on the state, you're uh, you're allowing your pe- your people, your child, your children to be exposed to different actors who have different motivations and who do not have the same understanding of you and of your people as you would. And so the same way that you might see a white teacher put that stigma on a black child, you certainly will see a black, a white caseworker. Um, do the same thing, or even a black case person who has white sentiments, which we also see all the time. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad you brought that one up because you uh, <laughs> that's so important and powerful. Um, those sister Tenny, when you when you're working with, and uh, and you said you was a were an attorney, and I don't know whether you still uh, do a lot of work with the child welfare system, but when you would come across, um black families or uh, black women in particular with children that are maybe in the, in the system or borderline getting ready to go into the system. What are some of the things that they talk about that they, that they would like to have help on? And when you talk to the children, what are some of the, is it a common thread uh, between the children and the adults that you see that, that almost affects all these families as a whole? Uh, help me with this. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think that the problems that you do see being addressed a lot are um, people just needing the structure to exist for them to not have to deal with the child welfare system. And the horrible thing is that once you have a case open, you know, you are going to be in court probably for a long time unless you're, you're, you know, your case is literally just bogus and it's so clear and plain as day. Um, if there's a hint of truth to any allegation, you're going to be in court for a long time. So, so wait so, a minute. So help me. Once somebody's identified as being in the child welfare system, it's difficult for them to get out? Oh, yes. There's actually studies that say that um, it's easier, like, if you have an attorney who can really advocate for you whenever your child is first um, 
whenever they're first brought into foster care and basically there's a hearing right whenever that happens where the court has to um, figure out whether or not the caseworkers ever stepped their bounds or whether or not they legitimately took the child. And at that hearing, um, if you're, if you have a lawyer who can advocate for you very well, then great because it's, there's actually studies that say that it's harder for you to get your child out of foster care um, than um, to, to basically be re reunited with your child. Um, because the issue is once your child goes into foster care, basically everyone is scrutinizing every single thing about you. Things that the normal population would not have to have the same scrutiny about, you, you receive that. You know, you have to um, make sure that you're going to all, the, all these services. Some of these services are so um, unhelpful to the situation. I mean, I've heard of parenting classes where you have parents with teenage children sitting at a, at a computer and the it's like a an online program telling you how to bathe a child like you don't need to know that and you know that by now you have a teenager so there's services that are unhelpful and if you do not show like show up and act like this is something that's meaningful for you then you basically will be the one who's not taking it serious you'll be the one who really doesn't um is not ready i mean that's, and that's the constant thing that we're constantly, they're constantly asking are is she ready is she ready is, is the child going to be back in foster care so the problem is a lot of children um basically are in foster care for things that had they just not been removed the parent could have been dealing with those same issues and um you know without any intervention but that's that's a really big problem um and that's why i say you know if you're in that situation you know get an attorney who's going to fight for you from the from the beginning, because after your child is officially in foster care and the court says it's fine, um, you're going to have to fight and fight to, in order to basically meet whatever standard they have as saying that you basically proved yourself worthy of having your child back. Mm. Uh, let me uh, go to and see if uh, a couple of these calls want to uh, to ask, I guess, a question and. Uh, you can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with author and activist, African Esquire TV host, Sister Tierney Cherie. The book, Fostering False Identity, the American Child Welfare System's Design of Social Control of the Black Family. Uh, let's go to a couple of these calls and see if they have a question or comment for our guests. Uh, 410, uh, Maryland. A question for our guest? Let's go to 404, whether they have a question for our guest. 404? Hey, 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 good show, Elliot. Good. Hey, hey, y'all know them fools in Congress coming up with a bill where they're going to have same-sex marriages can adopt her, man. Okay, I wanted my sister to know about this bill. That It's called a John Lewis. Talking about John Lewis uh, put that bill up. And this devil in uh, Chicago, what his name, uh, Danny Davis, going to try to run that bill through. I'm talking equality stuff, talking about what same-sex couples can adopt here, man. What y'all think about that? Mm. Well, I mean, you, you, come on. You know the answer to that. Uh, what do you think about it? No, I'm serious. You know, you know what the hey, answer to you that. You know me, I'm about to start cussing, man. I don't want to say no wrong words, but... uh. Anyway, uh, I want to hear what my sister got to say about that. And you can put me on hold. I might want to uh, comment later on in the show or something like that, man. Come on back to me, all right? Okay, then. Right. Appreciate it. I mean, what? that's not really the subject of this book. <laughs> um, mm. So, you know, I really don't 
see that as relevant to the issue of social control of the black family. Um, yeah, so I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> Let me go to 602. 602? 602? Yes, uh, uh, mm-hmm. yes, good evening. Good evening, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, and good evening to your guests. All right, you know, I'm doing great, good brother. You know, what the attorney is talking about, you know, is really, if I think if we really was to take a, a analysis of the situation currently, we would probably see a increase, massive increase in this intrusion as what they, they, they're talking about with the child, this child welfare system, with this pandemic. Because, you see, what by having that device you see that device if you log on that device gives them direct access to your house see the teacher who is connected to the social system to the child welfare system have access to the child and your household and they can see everything on the screen see they can hear what's going on in your house because they can unmute you from their side and hear what's going on. So I think if 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 you were to take a snapshot right now of the intrusion of what is going on with them, these teachers sending child welfare to people's house, you would see a, 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 a significant increase in what the sister talking about. And I lost um continue listening. Anyway, thank you very much. Good brother. Thank you for your contribution, sir. All right. Thank you. And you know, I, I um haven't had that experience probably so I recently transitioned from child welfare to now doing civil rights. Um so I haven't really seen how the pandemic um has led to Arise, but I wouldn't be surprised because the central feature again of the child welfare system is to again um, have people who are involved with these societal structures have them inside of a position where they're constantly under scrutiny, and so I could see that definitely. I mean, I and then I also have not had too much experience as far as um, having you know the issue of um, the classrooms inside of the home, but. Um, I could absolutely see that being a potential harm. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind, the reason why um, African people are always going to be under scrutiny from the system until something radically changes is because so many of the reporting sources are people who we encounter more than white people. So we encounter the police more than white people. We encounter these doctors who are subpar. We encounter teachers more. We just the systems that we encounter more. That certainly leads to us having more reports um, when it comes to uh, people alleging abuse and neglect of children. You know, um, let me say something because the caller kind of read my mind when I kind of tabled what I was going to mention in regards to this pandemic, because I, uh, a good friend of mine is a school teacher, and being that they do is virtual now um she monitors the classes being taught by other teachers uh you know from the computer and 
for example, if it's 20 children that's supposed to log on, you might have eight to 10 that log on. And being that some of the households don't have computers or might have one computer, then the computer is either set up maybe in the mother's room or something like that, and they might hear conversations going on. Uh, it might be profanity that happens. Uh, somebody might be walking around half-dressed, and all of a sudden the, the feed has to be cut. Um, and then they ha- and then I say, well, what do you do? You know, what are you supposed to do in that respect? Well, we we supposed to report it. Now, see, these things almost goes to what you were saying. Because if it's 20 children that's supposed to show up for virtual school and only 8 to 10 show up on the screen to go to class, and maybe 4 or 5 of that 8 to 10 has other things going on in the background that's not of their control, but then they end up being reported for some type of a neglect or abuse because they don't have the proper materials because their parents can't afford another computer or maybe set up in a room where they can have their own quiet area where they can learn. Uh, this is a vicious cycle uh, for some of our people, and they, and they I don't think a lot of them realize it. Yeah, and in the situation that I have seen is a, you had asking a parent who was unable to, just because of, you know, their day-to-day, they were unable to closely monitor their child as a single parent, closely monitor their child um, when they were doing these online, um, school, this online schooling, and um, there was a report from the teachers saying that you know they have educational neglect. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Wow. You know, if okay. you don't have the structures in place, then yes, absolutely, it literally makes you prime for scrutiny by the system. Even though, even though. Um... I want one as a couple of thoughts I just wanted to you know try to pull together um but I definitely when we I like to go through and maybe I don't know how much time we have but um um chapter 8 you really push our envelope um to as not just the mutual aid which I I consider that social um support network but even towards the you know the the, the classification of, of under self-determination. Um, and I think that that's important for us to, um, what you have um, pulled together to see that that's a, a realistic, um, a, um, a legal um, notion be- and taking that back to, because doesn't this reinforce uh, once again, that all that you just described to us over the last hour and so, reinforce and and i hope for the time for awakening audience as i see it um understand doesn't this really reinforce that we are a colonized people and that your children is a really under strict control of in this colony absolutely yes absolutely i think the child welfare system is one part of an entire system that's working together and it's a colonial system that enforces um, control of African people for the benefit of the white class. Um, As far as the right to self-determination, I think this is something that our people have to really take serious because the reason why, and this goes back to when you look at what has worked in the past, the reason why Native Americans were able to so strongly 
um, pushed to have control over their segment of child welfare was because they said we do have a right to self-determination. We're not um, a people who were of this country. We're people who have a distinct identity. We have a, po a political identity. And for that reason, we have to have control over our own affairs. And I think if you look at African people in America, we have a similar claim. You know, we did not ask to be brought here. We were brought here in chains. And if you consider the fact that uh, there's, you know, law in the books that a government who has shown itself unwilling or unable to take care or do right by a certain minority population, um, that population can assert a right to self-determination. I think we have every single right to make those types of claims. But it's going to take a real awareness on the part of our people, first, that we should try to advocate for systems that we can control. And it doesn't, you know, obviously Native Americans, they have the benefit of having separate tribes that have um, their own jurisdictions and stuff like that. And that's a benefit that we would have to find a way to um, continue, even though we don't have that exact structure. Um, but even so, self-determination is very flexible. We've seen instances in our history where we have exercised control over the institutions in our neighborhoods inside of our, inside of our communities. And so we have to imagine what it looks like for us, and we have to make those claims to the government. Otherwise, again, we're basically going to be leaving ourselves up to our oppressors to be right by us, and history says they will not. And you know, Elliot, this is why um, uh, Sister uh, uh, Cherie should be um, also, from my vantage point, I'm, maybe I'm being selfish and biased here, um, you know, as this discussion around reparations, right, they're in discovery, supposedly, if it ever gets to, you know, that the, the, the uh, HR 40 gets um, actually passed to actually go to its next step, that's one, that it should, um, the, the suggestion proposal consideration of repair um, what I hear you saying, Sister Cherie, that should be one of the elements that um, should be presented. Um, I, I hear all the financial and, you know, the, the economic, dealing with economic inequality or, or dealing with the wealth thing. But we, if we're in a, a colonial um, matrix, we have to have um, something that gives us some sense of self-repair. Um, and I don't, I don't know how that worked, but what you laid out is, is a possibility. So I hope that they, that they'll let you, um, somebody will call you to that seat and ask you questions because it would just, excuse me, tickle me black <laughs> to see those faces, uh, based off of using the child welfare system as the, um, as the sense, um, you know, of it to see how they respond to it. So that's, I just had to throw that in there. Yeah, and on the reparations thing, I think that's a good point that people have to think about, you know, or is it just the check that you're interested in or are we interested in changing a system that oppresses us? Because those are very different things. In my mind, you know, having, um, you know, I, I could see a situation where the government gives us money just to get that money right back because mm -hmm. we don't have the structures to even protect ourselves um, from these types of intrusions. So, yeah, we have to think systemically as a people. We have to think, how do we disrupt this system? And how do we use 
our advocacy that way and not just ways that are going to be easy for the government to, you know, solve. You know, if if it wanted to, it could have solved the reparations issue a long time ago. You know, just um, you know, give give a couple people checks and then unfortunately, like I said, we don't have structures in our community to protect ourselves from the state. So I don't think it would take too long for the government to find ways to get that money right back. So I agree we have to think very strategically and, and systematically. This fourteen hundred dollars is a it's a prime example. Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we uh, let let our guests go, because she did, and and you let me know, um, Sister Tanny, how how your time is situated. Um, let's go to Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, question and comment for our guests. Hi, um, I just have a quick question. I just um, can you please tell us where we can um purchase the book? Are there any um independent vendors? Um, where can we go and get the book? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your contribution, bro. Thank you. So, you know, at this point, I only have it on Amazon. Hopefully in the future, um, I can go on other independent websites. But for now, I just have it on Amazon, especially because I self-publish. Yeah, oh, you self-publish. Oh, great. Oh, check out. Yeah, if you <laughs> if you get a chance, brother, just uh, uh, go to Google and type in the title of the book, which is Fostering False Identity. The American Child Welfare System Design of Social Control of the Black Family, and you'll see the uh, the cover of the book, and you know uh, you can get it off of of, of uh, Amazon. Sister Tierney, um, I want to thank you for spending some time with us. I, I didn't want to hold you up from the family because. <laughs> I, 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 hey, look! Hey, look! If anybody watched African Esquire, you have watched a bumbling, energetic. Right, <laughs> African child, just uh, letting us know that we are only sharing her mother. Yes, <laughs> <His> mother. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he 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 does. He's very demanding, so I'm glad that he lets me do certain things at certain times. But yes, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for being with us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. All right, peace. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll transition into open form. Anything that's on your mind, give us a call. We'll talk about it and, and you know, the, the, uh, the segments that we have left. You can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com.
All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headed customer, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. And just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. For 12 years, I and others like me have held out radiant promises of progress I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not-too-distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he uh, teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And uh, 
For instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if, they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over a hundred billion dollars in reparations and gets four billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over two hundred million dollars and they get two twenty-one million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you've called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America... We know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He'll still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. Let me just say this before our time winds up. And that is, I want the people in the audience to go back and look at the video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kente. That scene 
opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office, and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kente has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene. Study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's, a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful scene. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.34 here on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. I want to thank our guest that was with, spent a little time with us to talk about the new book, author, activist, and African Esquire TV host, Sister Tierney Cherie was with us. The book, Fostering False Identity, The American Child Welfare System, Design of Social Control of the Black Family. It's available on Amazon. If you uh, Google it, you'll see the... Uh, the book and how you can get it uh, when she has it available in other venues. We'll make sure that you uh, know where you can get it from other than uh, Amazon. Richard. Yes. Yes. Um, interesting conversation with her t- t- talking about this system. And, and we can see how when she did a systems analysis, how all of these different systems are basically uh, have a single have a singular focus on destroying black relationships and black families. Yeah, and establishing relationships on approved ones by the quote unquote white power structure. Um, we'll deal with some of the approved ones later on, 
But um, that destruction of the black family has been systematic. It has been basically since we've been here, and it still continues. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I would, I would say um, there is no particularly different um, difference in then and now other than um, there is no, uh, it's not a working labor force. As she said, it's a control labor. It's a control population uh, that's going on. Um, you can, uh, you know, and I'm just reacting, but um, anybody who um, um, looked at Kenya doing its um, freeing, freeing itself during this liberation period, um, and one thing that the British came up with in order to, in order to deal with the uh, liberating front was to really, it had to put everybody on lockdown because they couldn't tell who was the liberators or not. So they just put everybody um, under under a, a strict um, control factor. Now, here we're talking about our children. And when I looked at those numbers, I mean, you're talking about seven, in a county, 76% of the children is under state, direct state control. Yeah, and it, and it hooked up somehow in the child welfare system, yeah. Or in, in in Philadelphia, I mean, in Pennsylvania, um, you know, you're talking about um, 40%, one out, almost one out of every two children are are, are connected to some way. And it, and it's one thing if there was connected and you've seen, as she said, when you look at a system and you've seen some positive outcome, but can you, I mean, can we truly say it's a positive outcome? And can we truly say, like, is there some puppeteer that has the final word? That's what makes it a system. And I think that that's so important that we understand that because people think that their individual actions, what they do as individual, uh, supersedes the the interaction that what most of us have with the system, which is not true. Francis, uh, uh, Mama Francis Cressewelding told me that this is a white supremacy is a system. It isn't how some some you know king maker or king or some god. It's a system, and a system is ruled by rules and regulations. And as the satirian said, when they see the system, the outcome is not what they want anymore. What do they do? They change the rules. Mm-hmm. It's this law, and we abide by it, even if it's to our own self destruction, which makes no sense. But. That might be a rant, right? Uh, well, we're in transition to open forum. Anything that's on the, uh, you know, the folks behind you, give us a call. Some callers sitting here, and we'll uh, go to them in a second. Richard, um, get your opinion on, uh, uh, and to be honest, and, and, and uh, I called uh, Brother Omawali afterwards because uh, once I got in, it had slipped my mind. I think oh. I tuned in the last half hour of the um the discussion between uh brother Omawali and um oh boy I forgot the brother the other brother's Supreme, name. Supreme um the name Supreme Supreme Logic. Okay. Uh and the title of it was Pan Africanism versus Americanism or something of that nature. Mm-hmm. And um well, but uh, listen. Give me your opinion, and then I'll throw mine in. And you know, I, maybe some of the listening audience heard it; they got opinions on it. If not, you know, we'll we'll talk. You know, just uh, 
kick some other things around. But give me your opinion on it, Richard. Uh, and I have no, um, it's, it's real, you know, I, I'm um, maybe biased, but um, Brother Omawali did a um, excellent job of presenting a um, systematic, logical, historical um, um, basis on two things that I can tell. Um, the evolution of um, the recent evolution, and I'll say recent because that's one thing that I think is people don't recognize that this is in North America amongst Africans in North America. This here, what's now being called nativism or Americanism, goes back to the colonial period. Um, there's people who have said that they see themselves as Americans and a part of the system. And anything else is is a is a challenge and a problem. Um, now, I, I didn't see um, the problem I do have with those who, are, and, and I don't know if it's a healthy criticism, and I I like that that they don't present a historical basis for their position, and it gets into ranting, name calling, and you don't know. It's it just it it just. It, it doesn't serve them well because um, you can't deny that we are all, we all came and we're all a part of this system. So the short is that I just thought that um, Brother Omawelli made a, 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 a good sound um, case that Pan-Africanism or we looking at ourselves um, greater than just, greater than just, um, not even greater than there's a question of whether we are even Americans, um, not by us, but by the American state itself. Um, um, and that gets into citizenship rights and, and all that birthright citizenship and all that. So, but he made it that pan-African. And when we look at self-determination from the perspective of that, we are global African people been affected by a global African system, a global system, of, of domination by European powers, call it English, call it French, call it Spanish, call it Portuguese. Um, and that the only way to be able to really come together is um, we as African people, no matter where we are, look at ourselves. Um, and, and it, it's, it's um, I think he made a, a good case and not that saying that, that we're a monolith, but just that, that, that as a strategic objective, that that's what the way we should look. I think he made a good case. So that's that's what I can do off the top. You know, I like to hear how the or if anybody heard heard it in the audience, their thoughts and views. Yeah, I, I like I said, I caught the last half hour. I didn't catch the um, you know the, the slide presentation. Although I know mm-hmm. you know when Brother Mawali presents things, he usually does a thorough job. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always comes with a lot of evidence and slides and things of that nature. Um, I didn't find out till later on that the brother didn't have anything. He just kind of was winging it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's unfair. It just from an objective look, because this is a serious discussion. It's a historical discussion that our people have had at least maybe over the past 200 years, maybe a little bit longer than 200 years where these mm-hmm. things have come up in discussion. Mm-hmm. So, you have to treat that topic with respect mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned for the ancestors that struggle 
you just can't, you know, you do a disservice just going winging it and, you know, and then degenerating into name calling. Right. That's, that's not, you know, if you look back at the minutes of some of the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Negro conventions where this topic had been brought up in conversation, mm. you didn't see it degenerate into name calling, at least in the minutes. I don't know what some of the brothers mm-hmm. might have said to one another, personal conversations, but you didn't see uh, name calling in minutes and things of that nature. Uh, I, I think that because this, these, these topics going to come up, Richard, and especially mm-hmm. now uh, centering around this uh, issue of reparations. Um, if somebody personally, you know, and, and I'm going to go to the callers, if somebody wanted to consider themselves American, because there's connection here, they might own some property, some land or whatever. That's, you know, that that's your personal preference. But you have to understand and realize that our ancestors came from the continent. You know, let, let me read this because I, I thought it was, it was um, ironic that it was in the book that uh, Sister Tierney had put in the book uh, mm. statements from... Uh, uh, brother uh, Michael Gomez that was on the program before that did the book right. on the continent. And let me read what she states here on page 106. It says maintaining, excuse me, hold it. Let me, it says white oppressors and slavery by impeding the practice of African culture use terms such as nigger, coon, sambo as identifiers of ethnicity instead of African. They had a clear agenda of dislocating enslaved Africans from their ethnic origins. The purpose of psychologically severing the ties that enslaved Africans had to Africa was necessary for turning formerly free men and women into lifelong slaves. Maintaining a connection to Africa not only served a means of opposition to the white ruling class, but also served as a means of sanity throughout a horrific reality. As author Michael A. Gomez writes, Africans resented their removal from their ancestral ground. Those transported here initially were single-minded in their desire to return to their native land. Whether they returned in this life or the next, they knew America could never be their home. Africa remained in their mental and emotional center. Enslaved Africans were able to resist attempts by slave masters to force them to forget their homeland of Africa through language, family, religion, oral traditions, folklore, and music. Language in particular served special importance as a means of a transition from life in Africa to life in America. Ample evidence exists that enslaved Africans continue to speak their native tribal languages in America. However, the need to communicate with Africans from other tribes, as well as difficulty of passing along their language to their children who were born in America, necessitated the recreation of African languages to suit the challenges they faced in America. Therefore, the African brand of English dialect taken on by enslaved populations were purposely distinct, often utilizing words from African continent for daily communications. 
This reality and other forms of cultural resistance can be seen in many facets of black culture today. So, you know, our, our people always had the ancestor home in their heart and minds. And that's how it should be. Uh, you know, you got, whether you're talking about Europeans here, Richard, or other nationalities that have come to this land, whether it be Asian, uh, people from India, wherever, they keep the connection to their ancestral land. Whether it's for economic purposes, whether it's for cultural purposes, or whether it's just to keep uh, dual citizenship. That connection is always there. They don't sever those ties. You're not, Europeans in the United States don't sever ties with Europe. To them, European areas, especially if you're talking about Greek and Rome, the Vatican, those areas are sacred to Europeans here. And the continent of Europe is sacred. They don't Irish, want, they, uh, say that again. Irish, Swedish. Yeah. I mean, they don't, they don't want any conflict going on on the European continent. They're still American. Uh, they're still America. Uh, they're still members of the the, the uh, European Union. America is. They want stable economies in Europe, and rightfully so. That's their people. That's their ancestral homeland. It's black folks that the, is the only ones that want to sever ties with an ancestral land and say that they belong to another land. This land belonged to another people before these these Europeans came here and basically tried to exterminate them. We can't take the same uh, mindset these Europeans take towards somebody else's land. So, I mean, all I'm saying is, Richard, it's, it, to me, it's nothing wrong with somebody wanting to be wherever they want to be. But you ju- it's not logical to just sever ties with your ancestral land. We've only been here three, 400 years at the most, maybe longer, some longer, a lot of them shorter. Mm. but we existed on the continent for hundreds of thousands of years. So that doesn't change uh, your ancestral DNA. It it doesn't just because our experience here. I I mean, I just, I I, I don't think, and, and, you know, if you have a, a intelligent discussion on the matter, you have to uh, come to the conclusion that, you know, the, the ties are still there. I mean, no matter where you want to be at or whether you where you would like to be, that's not the point. Because if you decide that my life is going to be here, it's going to be a struggle. You're still struggling against white suprem- the system of white supremacy. If I may, Elliot, the one thing that, you know, as I listen to that and then listen to others, the thing that, that, that continues, it's a question that comes to my mind because I place it in a, as I say, you know, it's a historical thing about these different views of should we stay, should we go, and this we thing, right? And those who say I am um, versus those who say I'm not, uh, uh, you know, using these short, like, short terms for identifiers. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I want, I, you know, the thing is that it's a power relationship, and my concern is for um, those Af- uh, Americans of African ancestry and lineage. If you align yourself with the, um, for whatever reason, I mean, however that came into being, and, and again, that is, it's historical, but if you re- align yourself with that power structure, my, the thing is, 
the question I have from a power relationship, do that mean you mean me harm? That's because the history has been European dominance has meant African people and the African continent harm. Certainly. So um, I have no challenge with that. That's what you identify yourself with. I have no challenge with seeing that because you see that that process to you is the best. The challenge I have, which isn't addressed and as you say, the reason why this discussion and it has evolved over the centuries here in these conventions or whatever is the question of do you mean me harm? Because if you don't, then that means you are doing things that will alleviate the power pressure that European dominance has had and have on African people. That should, that should be, you know, as Sister Tenery talk about systems that we should be able to see that outcome that you're doing that locally or internationally. But if you mean me harm, you're saying when we say um, police um, policy, um, international laws, um, economic expansion is doing African people harm locally and internationally, on in the Caribbean, in South America, Cuba, where there's African people, Brazil, Venezuela, throughout the continent. If you agree with the harm that has been done, then that means I have to, we have to, who looks as ourselves in another power trajectory, have to look at you different. And let's and let's make that plain. Um, this here. Fred Hampton film is being projected with a, a you know, some people will say he's an adversary, the, the person that set up Fred Hampton. Well, that's a symbolic representation, isn't it? Of those who will work in the interest of a power relationship to a people, a person who has done no wrong. Ain't, ain't robbed no bank. Ain't kill nobody, and and would allow with their effort to have them killed. I don't know if I can make it any plainer than that. That means you mean me harm. Your if your Americanism, even though we come out of the same family history, if it means to do that, then I have to look at you differently, and I have because the identity back and forth means nothing to the power relationship and the harm that's being done. That's, I don't know if that, that made any sense. Ellie, no, well, it, it, no, it makes sense because when you, when you take on that monicum of I'm an American, then you align yourself with all these racist policies or the stuff they've been doing to other people, the stuff they've been doing to on the continent to your ancestors. I mean, we don't benefit from anything coming out of the land of our nativity, uh, nativity. Other nations do. Europeans definitely do. They tell you everything coming off that continent that they can get their hands on. You don't benefit from any of it. Th that Does that make any sense, Richard? Not at all. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. And that, Other that's, nations are supposed that's... to benefit from what's going on on their mother continent. 
in one way or another. Even if you live in another part of the globe, you benefit from the connection you have with the land of your nativity. Even if you broke, you can always go home. It's, 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 and, 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 and we're, we're not talking about, uh, you know, no abstract thing. Um, I was just looking at an article where the richest people in the world in 2021, that came out on March, um, on March 9th, um, March 9th, um, in money, in money, um, in money magazine, money, you know, and it was, uh, visual capitalism. I looked through this list, Elliot, um, in different categories of different rich people, the richest people. And I see no African people. And definitely nobody of, of the richest. And then I asked myself, well, of, of those, because you could be money rich, right? You could just have, you know, money and be rich. Or you could be rich because you own productive assets. Mm-hmm. Like you own Google. You own Apple. You know I mean, you are the not just the CEO, but you are the founder and everybody is buying your product. And in your product, say Apple or, 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 or these smartphones, they're getting cobalt, magnesium to go into those phones and those African people and those that, that are, they're dying and impoverished so that you could be able to become the wealthiest man in the world. And then you're going to give a couple of billion dollars in philanthropy. And what, that's supposed to be justifiable. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, you know, I ain't no smart man, Elliot, but something just don't add up there. Yeah. Well, we can't. And that's, the, and that's part of the problem. We can't, we've been here so long and that's, listen, we're all guilty of that. Just like Dr. Fox said in his book, Addicted to White. We've been here so long, we've adopted a lot of these behaviors and, and thinking and mentalities. And we got to fight this, almost like somebody's on drugs. We have to fight this. It's a temptation. We have to fight it. Mm. Because it's not going to serve our people well at all. It's not. And it hasn't. Let's go to a couple of these calls. I mean, listen, I raised that. We don't perform the rest of the way. You can talk about whatever you want. Let's go, uh, let's first go to two six seven. Well, let's go let's go back to four four because he wants to come on. Then we'll go to two six seven. Uh, let's go to four 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 four. Yes, sir. Right on, right on, man. To tie in what you just said, Elliot. The day of the real New Year's. Happy New Year, y'all. Okay, mm-hmm. not no damn January first, but Happy New Year. Hey, but uh, I want to talk about these vaccine shots, man. <laughs> Okay, you, I know y'all heard about Marvin Hack, all right? Yes. I, I didn't hear the cause of Marvin's death, but I heard, he, yeah, he died suddenly. Well, his family said that he died at home, but his buddy, uh, Thomas Hitman Hearn, said my man took that shot, and uh, he ended up going back in the hospital. That's what his, uh, Thomas Hitman Hearn had posted that like two or three days ago. And so... Uh, now, uh, fast forward to to us. Uh, you heard from Brother Raph. He said he bought some of Dr. Lean product, right? And uh, I just want to see how he came out with it because I bought it too. 
Well, within the next two weeks, uh, Dr. Aleem and, and uh, Professor Jefferson, we, we plan to have them back on the, the program to kind of give updates on what's going on. Okay, because I did about the Pax Immune, man. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. And uh, so I, by the time we come back, I have more information to relate to him and the family. But I just want to compare what to how Ralph feeling because he said he bought some too. But uh, anyway, and uh, you know, Lewis Gossip had uh, say he had uh, COVID nineteen, but he took uh, ivermectin. Okay, and he said that would save his life, man. Lewis Gossip Junior. That's the ivermectin. That stuff is cheap, man. But uh, anyway, it's a lot of, uh, I mean, people do their research, man. That's all I'm saying, man. But I do their research. We in the research age, not, not in no belief, be lie system no more. It's research time, not belief for me. But uh, I just want to see my man, Brother Ralph, on the line, see how, how he feeling when he took it. Well, I'm, I know that they were in the process of doing medical trials, clinical trials, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in relation to the, the Cameron and Pax immune. Um, so, like I said, when Dr. Lean comes on, he, uh, I know that that's, that'll be one of the things that he talks about. Yes, sir. I appreciate it, man. I appreciate you bringing me black, man. Let me say a little few words. I, I want to uh, just thank you, man. You know what I'm talking about? I, 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 I hope y'all going to be on this Friday now, right? <laughs> say that again? Richard. I said, I hope y'all going to be on this Friday coming up, right? What you say, Richard? <laughs> yeah, you and Richard on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you then, man. All right, man. I appreciate it. I love y'all, man. Keep the information flowing like water, man. You know what I'm talking about? I love y'all. Talk to you. Take care. Let's go to 267. 267? Yes, yes. Elliot and Richard, you have a very good program. I'm having problems with my phone. I got to take it to the, you know, to the service people. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get on early. Um, First, starting off with the foster care, man, that was wonderful, man. It hit my heart y'all were talking about and you know one thing uh douglas said when he was a child how he was kidnapped and and it brought to my mind that from shadow slavery to now the aim has always been able to separate the children and the family douglas was told to play with some children next thing he knows he's amongst ownership and i thought about du bois and his writings he talked about very early about the dysfunctional family, and that was in the 20s. We at to this point now where families don't mind buying into the relationship with their children go. They don't mind putting their children in wrestling. They don't mind putting them in foster care. I think it was an excellent program that you had, and uh, you know, uh, it was at one time. Well, I. Uh, you, you, your phone is kind of your phone. Your phone is kind of gargling a little bit. Um, maybe you. I think on my phone. I don't hear you too clearly. Say that again. Do me. I'll, I'll put you on hold. I'll put you on hold. Maybe you can try to uh, get to another line or call back because I want to hear what you have to say. So try, try me back. I want you to call me back because your phone is, is, is messing up. Just call back. I'll try to get you right up. Let's go, again go to 267, 267. Hey, good evening, uh, Elliot. Good evening, Richard. All right, uh, sir. How's everybody? Good. You know, I, 
hey, man, uh, I've heard a couple of people discuss me and Dr. Aline's product. I bought a year's supply of it, man. Um, and uh, I'm telling you, it eases my fear. Um, I've been reading reviews on it, not only from Dr. Aline, but from other countries and other people that believe in antifuron and, and they, and some other stuff out here that they squirt up their nostrils, man, to, you know, you know, uh, build your immune system. So I, you know, my fear level has went down and I do believe, and this is my personal belief that, you know, there's a bigger risk in in me letting them inject, inject me with baby fetuses and some unknown substance than something that's, you know, holistic. So, no, nah, nah, you know, I want Brother West to know that I feel fine. I feel good. Um, my fear level has gone down. Um, and, and I got to just have faith, man, because, you know, one thing I brought up, and I brought this up to, uh, you know, another host on another station, like, you know, I'm seeing right now that our people are in the grip of fear. Anytime they line up like that to get something injected in them that is not even approved by the FDA, you know, something something's wrong with I mean, so it, and they say it's on an experimental basis. So we are the lab rats. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I don't, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm go, I'm always been holistic. I'm, you know, um, I know some people. I see them on uh, social media, sitting there getting this stuff stabbed in them, talking about they, you know, one of my friends, he, he's going out today to a party, said, "Oh man, I'm good. I got my two shots." I'm like, "Come on, you know what I mean? Come on, I'm still like very careful." But I got to say something, man. I haven't had even a cold this year um, just by doing their guidelines, like wearing my mask, mm-hmm. keeping the six feet of distancing. Um, and just, you know, and I do have to mingle. My job causes me to mingle. all. Now, I do know an electrician that just came down with it. But he says, like, it's one of the variants that he came down with. He said, you know, and he was he tested positive. He had a fever for about a day, and then it went away, and he had lost the taste and all that. But he said about a couple of days later, he was ready to go back to work. So if that's what it do, you know what I mean? Like, I know it affects people differently. I'd rather take my chances with that. And if, and if, and if I leave this earth, well, look, put it this way. I leave it believing in what I believe in. You know what I mean? Because I got certain friends, oh, man, you need to get the vaccine. Well, no, I don't need to get it. That's like me telling you and Richard to go out here and get the flu shot because it's still around. That's your personal choice. Now, as far as Brother West, he is right. Marvin Hagler did say right after, uh, I mean, uh, uh, it was Hearns. Mm-hmm. He said uh, right after Hagler went in there and got his vaccine, he went in the ICU for a couple of days, then he went home, and he died, you know? And, you know, and then they hurry up and jumped on Hearns because Hearns is now coming out saying, like, he didn't want that to come on, like, you know, come be put out there like he's an anti-vaxxer. 
So he's saying like, and he's mad that the anti-vaxxers are using what he say to build their case against that synthetic that they're pumping in the blood of our people. So, you know, I just had to come on and say those things, man. But no, I I heard Dr. Lee. I heard other people. I did my research on it. I bought a year's supply of it, man. And me and my wife, that this is the way we want to go. You know, we just work up in each nostril each morning, and that's it. You know what I mean? Fear factor gone. I believe, you know, the creator got me in this fight. You know what I mean? And like I said, even if I do die today or tomorrow, I die for what I believe in. I'm not going to let fear uh, ruin my life. You know what I mean? I'm not going to do that. So, you know, that's just my attitude with the whole thing. Yes, the stuff is out here. Yes, we got to be careful with it. Yes, it still affects the people differently. But the thing about it, I don't know what that, that – when they told me it's baby fetuses in, in some of this stuff, I mean, from aborted tissue, you know, I mean, it's out there. Johnson & Johnson admitted to it. It's out there. So if you want that in you, fine, that's your choice. I'd rather not have it. So, you know, I just had to come in there and explain, you know, what I'm doing. And and D3, Zinc, and the Paxamune. And I'm good to go. I ain't worried about nothing. So with that, you you guys enjoy your evening. Let me say this before you go. Um, Mm -hmm. when, when, uh, When they were just about ready to release these vaccines, or at least the two of them, this one just came out, uh, on the public, it was clear they did little impromptu uh, polls. It was clear that a lot of black folks or the majority of black folks wasn't interested in taking any vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still believe the majority of black folks haven't taken the vaccine. But mm-hmm. the, the, tide has cha- the tide has changed some because of the all-out media blitz that they have had to get black folks. See, this is the thing, Ralph. When you turn on the television, you don't see uh, white sports figures, white uh, uh, movie stars, white pastors. You don't see them telling white folks to get the vaccine. But you see nope. an all-out media blitz with white sports star, uh, excuse me, black sports stars, black entertainers, uh, uh, black singers and dancers, uh, uh, black pastors, all over the place, mm-hmm. telling black folks to take the vaccine. It's a media blitz. It is, and well, you know. It's programming, man. No, certainly, it's exactly. But programming. I mean, we and Richard talked about this earlier. Richard mentioned that what you just said, stated about the programming. So you know, you know, we just got to, you know, that, 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 and the fact that's why on on the program that we do here, we try to bring out information on what's going on so that people can at least be well rounded. If somebody wants to get a shot in their arm, that's up to them. But at least you'll right. have information on other alternatives that you can do. Well, well I'm gonna tell you what they're doing now. If you, if you, if they, they had that so-called vaccathon for like poor zip, zip codes, so that was like a bunch of lab rats. And then, uh, you know, now you should see the twist that they're doing. They're saying, well, 
Republicans are speaking out against, no, they're saying Republicans are speaking out against the vaccine, where most of the Biden voters, they're getting it. And I said, wait a minute, now they're making it political, not even the, a choice of the individual. They're making it upon party guidelines. And then you had all these doctors come out here and say, well, the, the virus don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat. And, you know, and I'm saying, oh, man, here they go. And our people go for that every time. Anytime they were willing to stand in line and vote for this guy Biden and Kamala Harris like that, out of fear, because they, you know, the other guy, they knew he was a racist, but so is Biden. You know what I mean? And But the thing about it, the, the, that's the programming. And when I tell somebody, no, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican, I'm an independent, they get, you know, they get upset with that because that's out of their realm. You know what I mean? They don't understand that. Why don't you get along, get on the program, get, get, get with the program, man. What's your problem? You know, and they're with, and, and I got a lot of friends that basically came out and said the same thing about the vaccine. I said, look, if it's your choice to go get that stuff put in you, fine, go get it. If that's your choice. Mine is I'm staying far away from it as possible. And if I die today or tomorrow, what concern of it is yours? You know what I mean? So, you know, that, that that's that's where it's at, man. I mean, you know, I just feel so sometimes when I listen to our folks, and I and I see the way they're programmed, and I see them on social media sitting there letting them inject this stuff in them, and it, it's not even approved yet. It's on an experimental basis. You don't know what kind of side effects will come down on you next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years. We already know Gates is into population control, and he's pushing it. So come on. And then again, these people might not know that. So, you know, I, I, I just had to call in and just uh, explain my stance on everything. And I do one squirt up each nostril every day, like Dr. Lean said, and I let go of that fear. I still practice social distancing. I do wear the mask when I'm in a place with a lot of people. And that's about it. I always wash my hands and wash my behind, man. You don't have to tell me that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, man. Yeah, well, listen, in, some uh, folks, some folks wasn't in the habit of washing their hands. And, you know, right. so, you know, some people you might say, oh, that. Them in them rest areas. oh, you see, listen, <laughs> hey, come on, man. I worked at the Navy Yard for a lot of years. Those guys used to bring yeah. them hoagie trays and all that stuff in. Them guys come right out the bathroom and their hands is right. I'm saying like, what the hell? I mean, <laughs> come on, man. Uh-uh. No. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's, it's, it's you know what? It's funny. It's funny, man. I I, I got to laugh at it sometimes. Just but I, listen. So I, I, I was really shocked. Depressed. Listen, I was really shocked at uh, the fact that uh, certain nationalities don't really like washing their hands. No, I mean that's something no. that your parents always say. If you came out the bathroom uh, and getting ready to eat, did you wash your hands? That's the first thing your parents. I mean, my parents. That was, yeah, it was drilled into. It was it. drilled into you. You wash your hands. Yeah. Uh, you go, listen. If I was if I was playing ball in the street and came in the house to get some water out the refrigerator, if I grabbed that door, did you wash your hands? That's the first thing they say. 
Richard, you know you ain't saying nothing. You know it's true. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're Watch right. your hand. Yeah. Some of these folks, man, they just go right for the box, the refrigerator, anything, and don't wash their hands. But but Rachel Levin from Harrisburg had to tell people in Pennsylvania to wash their hands. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> and, 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 don't don't get me started on this. <laughs> but anyway, man, go ahead. I know you got a a bunch of callers, man. I just had to I just had to call in because sometimes you got to laugh about stuff. I mean, it's so ridiculous that you got to laugh about, it. and then you see the fear factor that's going on with people, man. I mean, it's all right to have a healthy fear, but there's anytime you have old folks and people stand out in them lines around the corner, around the Leia Court Center for a so-called vaccathon, I said, man, we're done. <laughs> we're, we're history. And, there, and, and radio stations won't allow you to even voice your opinion about that. They hang up on you. So, mm-hmm. you know, with that, look, you two enjoy your evening. Uh, I can't wait to hear the rest of the callers. Talk to you. Take care. Now. All right. Let's go to 334. 334. Good evening, Brother Elliot, and good evening, Brother Richard. Uh, how y'all doing today? No worries, sir. Yeah, I've, uh, although I've only been on for, the, I guess, the past uh, now 45 minutes going on, um, I, uh, I thought I remember you saying something about a system that has destroyed uh, the black family and the relationships between them. I, I kind of wonder, then, then from Nathan Hare's book, uh, he had wrote about the, the endangered black family, and he had mentioned about Patrick Moynihan. Um, then since the 80s, 70s, 80s, nothing has really changed at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you're right. <laughs> nothing has really changed. That's That's interesting. It may have modified itself, exactly, um, but it really just hasn't changed at all. Now, let's look on the other side. What have we done differently since the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, knowing that these things are in place? Because um, as some people would say, we know from the inception of enslavement, um, what, the, what the deal has been, um, have we got any stronger? in relationship to protecting children or ourselves as adults. Uh-huh. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's, of course, um, it's been there. What is it that we need to be doing? Um, several questions um, that needs answers. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to chime in and, and say hello and uh, support the program as well. You know, listen, before you before you go, you, you, you raise an excellent point. And, and I guess if you was on for 45 minutes, you might not have heard her because she cited uh, Moynihan's uh, report to Johnson okay, at the time. Okay, I didn't. Okay. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. yeah, she cited his report to Johnson at the time talking about the black family. Now, um, and you mentioned that things haven't really changed. Uh, you know, the, cosmetically things have changed, but the, the, the thrust and approach haven't changed. So uh-huh. if that's the case, do you think that a lot of our people or or a critical mass, put it that way, of our people realize what's going on? Do you think they do in your personal opinion? Um, no, and I think there was a word that was mentioned earlier a couple of calls back with regards to programming. And, and because we had been socialized through these uh, European standards, I, don't, I think it's hit us so much so that we don't even realize that it has. 
And so um, because of the programming, because of the nonchalantness, if, if you would, of, of the way that we have been approaching things, um, yeah, it's hit us, but maybe they don't really, really realize that it has hit us. Okay. I, I, listen, I just wanted to get your opinion on it before, uh, you know, we moved on. Yes, thank you. Thanks for your contribution, as always. All right. Thank you, brother. Peace. All right, now, take care. Let's go to uh, 773. 773. You got me, brother? Yeah, you're on. Oh, well, thank you there, brother. I appreciate you and Richard for taking my call. But I've really been calling lately just to listen to you because my computer is down. I think Billy Bob is uh, jamming me. So I've just really been calling to listening. And I know most slaves, they don't want to hear the truth even though that sister you had on did drop a little truth. So, brother, I don't want to upset the cock with no real cold-blooded truth because it's going to be coming down the pipe, and they're going to see what I've been saying eventually. So uh, you just put me on hold, brother. I was just listening to the uh, show. I don't want to upset too many of the slaves. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you don't want to upset them let, let, it, listen go ahead make your point the process of understanding or perceiving a common evil has put many people into a situation of the utmost danger And that is exactly where the slaves today in America find themselves. People who were exterminated in the past, they never saw extermination coming. They saw themselves being treated unfairly. They saw themselves being treated wrongly, killing one here, killing one there, brutalized. But they had no idea that the people doing this to them ultimate plan was to exterminate them. And history shows that so-called Indians, so-called Aztec Indians in Mexico, Mayas Indians in Mexico, the original people in them islands, Australia, New Zealand, they didn't kill every single one of them, but they killed the masses of them. That is where we are right now. And if any slave want a chance for life, they have to try to think about escaping out of here, especially if you got some young children, young grandchildren. You don't want these sick psychopaths to get their hands on them like they got their hands on them children down in Texas. They fed them children down in Texas to these psychopaths. Do you imagine what they're doing to them? Got them all over the country. That is exactly what they're going to to do to us. Now, that beautiful sister you had on, she know what time is, but she cannot change master system. We got to stop playing. This is not our system. Slaves don't want to hear that. Well, I don't think she was trying to change master system, so to speak. Yeah, but the thing she is talking about for her talking and working with, 
she has to change master system and what he want to do with school children, law enforcement, prison. She has to change his system. Richard, that's why people die for land, man. They've been fighting in Afghanistan for over 2,000 years. One invader after the other. What are they fighting for? They fighting for land. They fighting to rule themselves. Vietnam, I was there. They is fighting to rule themselves. Now, now, wait wait a minute now. There's a difference between ruling yourself and for land. Uh, They may be interconnected, but they are different. And, uh, you know, and I'm only speaking from the perspective, if you don't control yourself, it doesn't matter where you are, you're still under somebody else's control. That's not about land. That's about what I don't know what they the term now they call a human being. And I also want to add, if you look, when you get her book and you look at chapter eight, she is, I mean, she has a, that whole chapter is about self-determination. Yeah. Now, yes. He's talking about changing it now and that's that's an interesting for me it's interesting because that's the second question because we ain't even dealt with based off of what you're saying um which i i wouldn't i would agree if we don't do what you're saying is an inevitable inevitable conclusion if we don't get control of ourselves it don't matter where we where are, we are. Or, not ourselves brother rich if we don't have land for independence and self-determination no, we but you. But, they don't not going to lie that here. But, That's why God said we had to get out. But brother X, before yes, you sir. before you reach any conclusions, you have to come to the conclusion, or you have to work on self. It has to be a decision. That, for example, you're saying that, from your understanding, this is going to be an an inevitable conclusion that these people are going to come after us, right? And you want other people to understand that, right? Yes. Well, it has to take place in the mind first. That's what her book is about. It's not about changing white folks' minds. It's about changing your mind and realize what you're up against. Yeah, but she's also talking about rules and laws. They make those rules and laws. Yeah, but she's talking about rules and laws, what they have done, so we can realize what they're doing. Some of our people don't realize what they're doing. She ain't talking about changing no rules and laws. She's more intelligent than that. She's talking about these rules and laws have been put in effect to destroy black families. And some black families think that these rules and laws is helping them. But okay, brother Ellie, how you going to change it when it's their empire? They run it from A to Z. You how can, would you change You it? can change your mindset. Oh, I got that. But that ain't law on the book when they run it. Okay. So when you change your law, when you change your mindset, the next thing you create, using um, Bob Amos, uh, um, Amos Wilson and 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 uh, Wade Nobles, the next thing you create is laws to govern yourself. You, in I mean, their land, in their you, land. Now, so you, you you jump to the land. Now it's true. Once you change, once you create laws that govern yourself, then you create out of those laws. You recognize what environment you're in, and the next group of laws you create are called strategies. Strategies, I got that, brother. They are laws. I now, got that, but we're going to come up with laws in their land, their land. It don't matter where you are. 
you 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 dealing okay. with them jumping away from us. But I I, I got that. I mean, well, as, okay. as long as you're saying what they got, they got land, they got rules, they got so law. This is their country. This is their country. As long as, they long as you're it. saying that, as you say, those yeah, but people they, have been fighting. They don't can. Matter of fact, this this you yeah. I was just in the era. Um, if you were in the place uh, in Vietnam, um, yes, they were fighting on their land. But these people here thought that because they had the maximum amount of gun of firepower, right, right, people and people like you and I, because they thought they had the maximum amount of firepower and people that they could take this little land, not the land, but these little people, and they gave them all kind of names, that they could take them off the map with no no problem. And no, they knew they were going to have a problem, Richard. They I, knew they were going to have a problem. No, That's no, why they, no. it was that fighting. They knew they were going to have a problem. No, they. I mean, but they threw everything at them, and that is, from that point to this point, they have not won a war. Um, well, I don't know about that. They, no, they, I noticed they, something they, in Vietnam. They, even even after they so-called won the war, they still had to come back to boss. They wanted a uh, banking system. They wanted their, ATM. They terms. needed medication. Under, they yeah, still they, had to come back to boss. Under, under and that's that's what because they were using their rules because they can't. If they came back, just like if anybody, if we come, if you, if I beat you, but I said, I like, I like what you got over there. Now you clear that you ain't just taking with something from me. Yeah. I'm going to come back and create some negotiation, What you're clear of that. You just ain't going to be taking nothing from me. So they Not did. At all. You ain't going to take it all. Yeah. Right. But you did. And what I give up, I'm giving up. Now with us, we don't have no rules. We have no laws. We have no social relationship with each other. We don't even have the mindset. We still arguing. Are we the, still the same people? And and then only thing that we can look at is what they got. They got military. They got the control of the land. They got control of the courts. They got control of the political. So we talking about what they got, and we still ain't addressed. Well, why we ain't got no relationship with each other? So they burned it down. They burned it down. They wouldn't allow you to have no town. They wouldn't allow you to have no invention. Brother X, let me grow. But let me every time you do something, somebody cutting you down. Well, let me let me help you with this. Let me help you. Because I want you to understand that whatever happens, these folks are still afraid. I don't care whether he dominates the land, whether he got weapons, whatever. They're afraid of you. They were afraid of you on the plantation because if one person was talking about running away and they found out they didn't want it to spread, so they would beat him in front of the whole... Why would they do that? Why would they They're beat him? They're afraid of your seed. They're afraid of you. They eliminated Fred Hampton. There are people talking about that movie. Why did they do that? Why did they come after all of these men that were basically talking about... Black people rallying around one another and helping one another. That's yeah, dangerous. Challenging, uh, white supremacy. Well, that's my whole point. That's my whole point. That's where it starts at. It starts in your mind. It don't matter about somebody got more weapons. That's bull crap. 
it starts in your mind. You defeat these people first in your mind and then spread it. I don't care whether you, you could be on Mars and then spread it to (laughs) other people. Okay. In their land. This ain't his land. Uh, uh, Whose land is it? He took it. Uh, yeah, he took it. Does that make it yours? Money? Does that make it yours? Because if I come to your house and steal some money out your house, does it make it mine? Or am yeah, I a thief? Or, or am I a thief? If you can't take the money back, it's mine. Okay. Right. And if you don't work at work some kind of way to, to, to stop them from stealing from you, who fault is that? Brother, I feel y'all, but I just don't think it's going to happen in their land. Let me close with this. The great Marcus Garvey had the only real solution for the slaves. In the 1920s, he had a Back to Africa movement. Garvey said, we will never be a citizen here. We'll never be treated right. He said, we will never be treated fair. He said, the only chance we have is to go back and reclaim Africa for us and the Africans. Garvey said that in 1920. I am a living witness today that Garvey was exactly right. This ain't coming from me. I'm a student of history. Yeah, but you said we can't do that because he's the great no, father and he got all the here. weapons. huh? Yo, you got to get out of here. You're not going to have independence and self-determination and a white supremacy headquarters. It's impossible. You, is white supremacy on the continent of Africa? Yes, it is. Okay, so if you defeat it, you're going to defeat it no matter where it is. Yeah, but you can't. You can't praise Garvey. You can't praise Garvey in one voice and then turn around and say you can't beat this European. He's such a great. He's the Almighty. Come on, that's bullcrap. Think about it, brother. Let's be for real. When Garvey is talking this in 1920, it don't matter when he's talking. They don't have all this technology. Uh, okay, now here come the excuses. Here's the excuses again. No, there ain't no excuse. There ain't no excuse. I said when God said that in 1920. These you ain't in 1920. You in 2020. You in 2021 now. Not I 1920. Okay. I got that. But I'm telling you, in 1920, things was close to primitive. God it was primitive? What are you talking about? It was primitive. What was primitive? I'm just saying in 1920, they didn't have the technology and the know-how they have now. They that was the, the chance gun. to defeat them in Africa. They had the machine gun. That killed more Europeans, uh, I think it was the First and Second World War, the, the, having that, that machine gun they, when they created it, and they was killing each other with it. Yeah, I know. They, but listen, but, but the Africans, they would have had a, a comrade too. The Chinese wasn't with the white man then. Russia wasn't with the white man then. If they had saw them fighting the white man, they would have supported them and tried to get with the winner to take the white man down. Oh, okay. Because they know how evil he is. All right. And they wanted to have a, a, a come there and be the friend of Africa. But okay. they, they took garbage down, and we weren't able to move on it. But I feel what you brothers saying. Okay. Thanks for your contribution, yeah, I want to thank y'all for taking my call. But I've been calling you lately just to hear the show, man. Uh, I didn't really want to come on because I, I ain't want people to be up all night, can't sleep. <laughs> talk, talk to you. All right, brother. Appreciate it. <laughs> Take care. <Hey>. Let's <laughs> go to two. Let's go to 215. 215. Good evening, brother Elliot and brother Richard. How y'all brothers doing tonight? How are you, son? 
I'm doing fine. I praise you, Tola. Yeah, I, I, mean, I know you were short on time with, with, with Sister Sheree because I definitely wanted to make some comments to her. I had some comments because I like, I want to, I know you can get the book off of Amazon and I know in the future other things. I got some comments I wanted to say to her because I mean, y'all got, y'all got so many things on the plate tonight. But uh, yes, I, I, I love this sister. I hope y'all can have her back on. And, and, and before I get started on any other stuff, let me deal with Sister Sheree and, and, and I want to deal with Brother Richard first because Brother Richard, he was thinking about his childhood that really struck a chord with me because just like you brother Elliot into the time for Wigan listen to it I had the uh, fortunate if you want to call it that of having a two-parent household we wasn't on welfare and, and stuff but the point is I had friends of mine that was and I know how that system was and stuff and I know how like brother Richard said how it can be how it's put in place to destroy the black family because I did not say I'm 59 years old and I moved growing up in the early 70s. And so this is why I have so much love for the Black Panthers because right around the corner from me, right, right near the corner, 60 for Susquehanna, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, I could, I could remember like it was yesterday, the Black Panthers uh, Party feeding black children who, was, who may have been poor, whose parents may have been, you know, in poverty. They gave them a hearty breakfast. Now, I didn't have to eat the breakfast because I had, you know, I was had breakfast myself, but a lot of times I would skip breakfast at home, Brother Rich and Elliot, so I could eat breakfast with my friends whose parents wasn't quite as fortunate as, as I was, you know what I mean? So I used to go around and eat the sausages, the eggs, the uh, pancakes, things like that. And they, and, they, and they fixed a good breakfast, cereal, oatmeal. I mean, you went to school at, went to school at, at Claghorn, and that the Clackhorn had burnt down with the Duckery Elementary School right near six, right at Sixth and Susquehanna. And we went there with our bellies full. And our bellies was full because of the Black Panthers, man. They fed our children. I never forget that and stuff. And, and, and that's what we like Brother Richard said about the welfare system. You know, one of the one of the things that I first saw, and I'm sure you and Richard saw the picture with Claudine, with Diane Carroll and James Earl Jones. They yeah. gave you an insight into how the system worked, how she, he had, she had to keep him almost like in secret because these white social workers would come to the house and they found any man in the house. They would cut your benefits off. You had, like Richard said, they, they came and, and searched your house like you were some kind of criminal. I mean, this stuff is it's, it's, it's terrible what these people mm-hmm. did. And, and see, what the white man has did, Ellen Richard, he has skillfully made black women and Puerto Rican women a face of welfare, even though you got more white folks on welfare per capita. But, but so you heard these white politicians, like you heard devil, like Ronald Reagan say, well, some old black woman came to the, uh, and got a welfare check in the Cadillac. See, that's to appeal to white anger. You know, these freeloading Negroes, these freeloading niggas and spicks getting a free check and stamps and, and, they, and off our hardworking white folks. Even though you got these white folks in Appalachian, white girls having babies out of wedlock, but they're not talking about them. They 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 they, they, meant they putting the anger towards uh, uh, black people and uh, Latino women. Because I never forget when I worked at the hospital. See, and, and, and like Sister um, Shabir was saying, see, white folks so racist and vile that they 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 they, 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 they so hateful that they they getting scammed and ripped off by the system. For example, when I used to work at the hospital, I used to get into these white boys. They they if they thought a sister, but understand me what they if they thought a sister, whether she was black or Latino, if they thought she was getting one more dime, one more dollar on her food stamp allotment, 
or a welfare check, these devils would have a fit. I mean, they would raise holy hell. I'd say, well, y'all don't have no problem with these white boys ripping y'all off. So y'all white boys pour the church mouth, and you get upset. How about these white, rich white men who already know you're getting tax cuts? It's, it's hurting your benefits, hurting your standard living. You ain't got no problem with that, but you get upset because of, cause you think a, 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 a black woman or a poor woman getting one more dollar and what they should get. And this is how these white people work. And see, people like Ronald Reagan, Newt Gingrich, that that bigot that just died a, 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 a few weeks ago, West uh, Limbaugh. See, this is what they put in the white people's minds. Cause, you know, New Guinea for years they called Barack Obama the food stamp president. You know what I mean? See, these people know exactly what they're doing. They put that image out there about black people, the freeloaders and stuff, when it's the, their own kind that's this, 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 on welfare. Because most black folks, if they got any... Uh, a chance of getting a good job or, or business, they don't want even want to, want to be allowed on this system. Most of our people that's on this system is because they have no choice. They're trying to feed their families and live the best life they can and stuff, like your mother, brother Rich, and other mothers and, and, and fathers during that particular time. I mean, so we know what, this, what the deal is, but I'm going to definitely get Sister Sheree's book because our people need to read that book and understand how this system is geared towards us to destroy the black family, man. It's, it's, it's deep, man. And, and, and Brother Elliot, let me say this. When you was talking about, uh, I think we were just talking to Brother X about uh, about the situation where, uh, you know, we 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 we, 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 we time when we say we American and all the stuff that come with it. I think you might have been talking to X or the other brother and stuff. And we we got to be very careful with that term because, like you said, that means you're adopting and accepting America's vow treatment of people around the world. And I remember my late ancestor, Brother Wayne, used to always say, he used to say, Brother Joe. I never yeah. say I'm an American like that, he said, because I do not, he said, don't tie me with what goes on. So when you say you're an American, that means you, you, you that means you approve when they drop a bomb on, 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 on the African nation, like Barack Obama killed more people in his minute with drones than, than, than his white predecessor. So you, that means you're accepting that kind of stuff. And that's why we have to be very careful saying you part of that, because you don't want that attached to your name. Because like I said, when I went to Egypt back in 2000 with the dessert club, I was on a, I was on Egyptian soil, and I told the Egyptian, especially the young sisters and brothers that was in Egypt. I told the most of the majority I spoke to was Muslim, and I made them very clear, and they appreciated me. I said, I'm just, I said, I don't control American foreign policy. I said, I want to let y'all know over here in Egypt. I said, I do not agree with this policy. I said, I'm a victim of American imperialism, white supremacy, American imperialism. I don't agree with their policy towards how they treat my people. I don't agree with the policy how they treat. How they support Israel and their criminality against my Palestinian brothers and sisters. I don't agree with none of that. I make them, and they appreciated that. I, said, I don't control that. I'm doing all I can in America as a black man with other like minded people. They try to fight and have self determination. So. I, we can, so we can over, over, overthrow that yoke of white supremacy. I said, I don't agree with that at all. And, and, and so when you make it clear to people like that, you let you separate yourself from them. So people, they'll look at you overseas and they'll say, okay, Brother Joe, Brother Richard, Brother Elliot, Brother X, whatever, y'all in America, but it's good to know you got some conscious black men and women over there that don't agree with this way that y'all had on. They don't agree with this system. But you always want to make sure you separate yourself from them, you know, and that's important. And and, and, and I'll say a few more things, Alex, I know Brother Jan is going to get on. When you talked about that vaccine, and again, uh, I, want, I pray to Allah that Brother Ralph and Brother West stay healthy because I'm, I'm going to get the practice of me with Dr. Elaine. I'm going to get that as well. In the meantime, I've been doing what, what Dr. Elaine and Minister Farrakhan Abel's been saying. I've been eating my vegetables, my fruits, 
keep my immune system drinking my water. And like Brother Rouse there, I've been cleaning my hands and doing that anyway, even before I heard, even even before I knew COVID nineteen exists. So I just come continue to practice what I've been practicing before I get a uh, a uh, uh, the name from uh, Doctor Eileen. And you know, once again, Ralph made a good point, Elliot, when he was talking to y'all. See, he said that Tommy Harris. Coming out because he's being attacked now. See, I didn't know that the hitman had made that comment because, as you know, Tommy Hearns and Marvin Hagler engaged in one of the greatest boxing matches. It was probably the most brutal two or three rounds in boxing history. As you well know, you've been a boxing fan, and uh, and him and Tommy became good friends after that after that fight, which was all good and all good and stuff. So when Tommy made that comment, he didn't realize he was going to be an attack because he's getting a pushback. He's now coming out because he's saying, "Don't." Make me to the anti-vaxxers, and, and Tommy probably know in his heart that he probably feels though that the that the vaccine may have caused Marvin's death. But you see a pattern there, Elliot and Richard, and in the, the time from we can listen on this, and we can't miss this. If you remember when Hank Aaron passed away, remember his granddaughter was very vocal early on about the vaccine. His granddaughter about what he may have killed her grandfather. As soon as they got to her, she changed the tune. She quieted down. And see, like Ralph said, on terrestrial radio, especially here in Philadelphia, if you call up Richard Nellett, you all you, you, you got to do is call up and say, well, I'm not taking the vaccine. They don't even respect you and say, well, you know, uh, Brother Joe or Brother Elliot, you know, that's your right. They jump all over top of you. Are you covered with that conspiracy stuff? Are you irresponsible and stuff? I mean, you can't allow to have an opinion and stuff like that. So they will never have Dr. Liam on, on, the, on, on terrestrial radio hand for the duck. They are, they, they're afraid of what he's saying because if you're not a black doctor or a white doctor for that matter, if you're not talking straight, Take the vaccine for black folks; they don't want to hurt, and, that, and that's no accident, brother. And it's dangerous too, because it got our people, like Brother Ralph said, like sheep being led to slaughter, and that's very unfortunate. And matter of fact, uh, they would they wouldn't even have the white Caucasian woman who Minister Furkanum had at the Savior's Day the other week, Dr. Judy Makovic. She was the one. She's a well-respected doctor, uh, Anthony Fauci, who's nothing but a criminal, and in, in line with Bill Gates, he has tried to get this woman disbarred from her medical profession because she exposed. Fauci years ago for what he is and stuff like that. But see, to, but again, our people blind and they had the wrong information, Ellen Richard. So what do they do? You got black folks on, on this terrestrial radio station here in Philadelphia saying, listen to Dr. Fauci. If they knew what Dr. Fauci, and listen to me carefully, Ellen Richard, if they knew what Dr. Fauci thought about black people, they wouldn't have let that come out their mouth. This, this man is a cold blooded bigot. He, he, he's part of the Bill Gates, the population of people of color, especially black people. And you tell them, black folks, to listen to this bigot. But here you got a Caucasian woman, Dr. Judy Markovich, who's telling you that this man is no damn good. But you won't, you won't listen to her, but you listen to that bum. You know what I mean? So, so all I'm saying, Ellen Richard, that this misinformation is dangerous, man. This is why our people have got to get educated and understand whose side they should be on and who they should listen to. Because if we keep going on this road, brother, we're in some serious trouble. These people, man, is no good. And like Ralph said, it's experimental. They tell you that this this, this 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 vaccine is experimental. And now you got four of them out now, Ellen Mitchell. You know that, right? You got the McDonough, right? The uh, what's the other one? Price, how you pronounce that? Uh, Pfizer. 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 And you got uh, uh, McDonough. You got Johnson Johnson, AstraZeneca. And they said over, I heard over in France that many of the people over in France, which, as you know, is a European country, they saw a lot of the French people right now, I heard on National Public Radio last night, they rebelled against, they said, has made several people sick, and some people may, I think they may have killed a few people over in France, this AstraZeneca. Yeah, I don't think I mean, it's here. I don't think it's here yet. 
did the AstraZeneca. Right, here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, so you see clearly that you got four, so you got four different, let me think about this. Like you said, you, know, you made the point a while ago. What is this uh, crap shoot? Let's take your pick and see what sticks, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. So you got four damn vaccinations out there now. Again, you don't have AstraZeneca in the United States yet, but I'm sure at some point it'll probably be coming. So you so, so you tell me as a, as, as a human being, a black man in particular, to take something that y'all not even sure about. You know what I mean? Are you crazy? And our people that's been led to show, they think about that, Ellen Richard. Four different vaccinations are out right now, you know? And yet, and yet all of them got different things of what they can do. And like Brother Ralph said, some of them got baby fetuses. And you got to be kidding me, man. And our me, people, again, being blindly led to slaughter. I mean, let you know me try to get a, I'm going to try to get a couple more of these calls on for a week. Okay, thanks, buddy. I'm out, man. Thanks, buddy. Now, and I'll listen to the rest of the show. Right. Let's go to 469 in Texas. Four sixty nine. <clears throat> Hello, how are you all doing? Great. How you doing, sir? Oh, not too bad. I didn't get in on the beginning. What is the lady's name who and her book? Uh, Tony Cherie. The book is called Fostering False Identity: The American Child okay. Welfare System Design of Social Control of the Black Family. I'm sure you all have that posted on your your Facebook page, right? Uh, I'll put it up. In fact, uh, okay. the the podcast of this program, I'll put it up there also. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. I'll check that out. Um, you know, I was listening to James speaking, and James just don't think that these people can be defeated. You know, all these empires, these so-called great empires, they've risen and they've fallen they can be defeated the vietnamese the vietnamese defeated them china has defeated them so the biggest thing what is uh, brother oshi on his um comment that he makes at the end of his show about um stephen biko mm-hmm. the greatest the greatest weapon of the oppressor the is the mind of the oppressor. Mm-hmm. When you can suppress it and make people feel like they cannot win, exactly. you won the race. Exactly. So, you know, so it's just a matter of just hanging on and just understanding and seeing what's going on in the world. This country is falling and it's falling fast. And everyone should be able to see that. They're so crazy about money that they will do anything and everything because of it. And that's one of the reasons why this virus hasn't been contained. They hate Cuba, and Cuba probably has the best medical system in the world. So everyone is not going to believe it. The majority of the people are brainwashed to the extent to where they feel like this system will be around forever. So you just have to let them go. Mm-hmm. So again, I appreciate you all show again. Once again, you all do a fantastic job and I'm going to kick back and just listen to the remainder. Listen, before you go, you're in Texas. Yes, what is, what's going on down there? White folks have snatched their masks off and they piling up in places, huh? Well, no, I'm actually in, in Tulsa. Oh, you're but in Oklahoma. I, okay. Yeah, well, well, I went down there last week, 
Not necessarily, because the, the mayor in Houston, Sylvester um, Turner, you know, he's fighting tooth and nail to keep those restrictions in place. Okay. And they have a young Hispanic woman who's the, uh, um, she's over the, the county judges, says she's a young lady. She may still be in her 20s. If she's not in her 20s, she's barely out of them. And they've been fighting them tooth and nail. Uh, I was in Dallas last weekend, and people are still practicing. The majority of the restaurants and things that you go in, they require you to you to take keep your mask on. I went down there to three black uh, vegan restaurants, and two of the three of them, they wouldn't even allow you to eat in. You could eat on the patio, okay. but you couldn't eat inside. Okay. So, you know, they're practicing. This guy who they got as a governor, you know, he's, he's an idiot. But the majority <laughs> of the people, they they know what's going on. So it's not like, you know, they're running around in masses doing that. Some of them who have always been doing it, even when the rules were in place for you to wear masks, they, you would have to argue with them about it. But the majority of people... They're following the rules. Okay. They're using good common sense. Thanks for your contribution, brother. All right, then. Peace. All right, take care now. Bye-bye. Let's go to 404 again. 404? Hey, Elliot and um, Lord, I forgot. I was about to say yeah. Reggie, but it's not Reggie. They're <laughs> Richard. <laughs> Same R. How are you all doing this evening? Good. All right. Well, this is Sarah calling from calling from the Big D, and um, to go, um, to um, to back up on what that caller just said that came off the line. What the governor have done is the governor uh, of um, Greg Abbott has done is he's lifted the mandate. Businesses are still allowed to enforce their rules if you want to come into their establishment. They still have their signs posted that face masks are required. Okay. So if you don't want to put on a face mask, then they have the right to refuse you services. Okay. But he has just made, no, he has just, he has not made it compulsory, which is what has been going on. And I don't have a problem with that. So people should have a choice. So if you want to walk around without a mask, it should be up. It's up to you. But people have a right to refuse you service. Now, I, I missed the young lady that was on talking about the, the, um, the child welfare system. Um, I'll go back when you post the podcast mm-hmm. and I'll listen to it because I just, um, I was in and out sporadically, so I didn't get to hear the full extent of it. But one of the things that I have to say with us is just like with the Jewish people and the Native American, they have a policy in place whereby it, um, fostering and adoption should only be allowed within their group. The same thing should be done for black people, descendants of the enslaved. We should not want to have our children to be adopted by people who enslaved us and demonize us for them to make a profit. Because as she stated, it's a money hustle. The same way it is with the foster care system. They want to have these children because it's a money hustle. It's not only that. I'm seeing a lot of these so-called homosexuals and lesbians with black children. Now, if you want to make an option of saying that you want to be dating same gender people whereby your procreation process is not going to function, that's entirely up to you. We all have that choice. But I have a problem when I see black children being drawn into this madness. 
And I'm seeing, and, and mostly it's a lot of young black boys that I'm seeing with these gay white males walking around with these black um, young children. Now, you want to know what the hell is going on in these households where they say you have two fathers or you have two mothers. And it, 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 it is already bad enough for these children having to be out there in this system. Yeah, exactly. And to be thrown yeah. into this confusion. Yeah, I agree. They already traumatized by being in the child welfare system. Exactly. So there, there comes, and, and, and now they want to talk about you can't refer to people as a him or a her, or and all of a sudden other nonsense. You can't say mommy or daddy. You know, I'm saying, good God Almighty, what the hell have we become? I have a mother and a father. If it wasn't for my mother and my father, I would not be here on this planet. It takes two opposite sex in order to procreate. I was not created in a lab. Even if and you did it in a lab, it still takes a male and a female to come together to contribute in order to produce whatever it is that you're going to um, put in a Petri dish in a lab. It's not no same gender. No two female eggs can come together and create a, um, a new life. And on this, this, um, this vaccine program, I'm going to go, go on that. I was, um, I talked to Ralph earlier, my job, I'm not in the healthcare industry. I'm not one of these frontline workers, but my job, they sent me a text message telling me that I need to come in and be, um, be COVID tested. I told them I respectfully declined. I am not going to go on anybody's job and let you take my information, my medical information, to say you want to test me for COVID-19. And for all I know, you could run all any other kind of tests, and I don't know what you're going to be doing with my biological information. So I would advise anybody out there who are on these jobs and you want to know your history, that's why you're paying for your medical insurance. Use your medical insurance and go to your own private doctor, like I told them. If y'all want to know my status, I'll go to my doctor, get tested, and I will get it on the certified letter from my physician, bring it in to you so that I, you can know my status. But no, I will not be coming in there and getting tested or taking any vaccine because they've been pushing this stuff fast and furious in all these jobs for people to get tested as well as to take these vaccines. And y'all have got to be very careful. I hear a lot of people been putting stuff out there in the airwaves. When you start putting this crap out there in the airwaves, you're giving these devils ideas, such as telling people that they're going to have to have it to travel on aircraft. These airlines are already suffering. When I'm traveling to um to get to to go back and forth to these different um things that I have to do, most of these airlines, they are at 50% or less capacity. You start enforcing, telling people they have to have a um a vaccine certification or to get on a plane, you're about to ask yourself to go bankrupt because Delta, American, a lot of these airlines, they're barely hanging in there. <laughs> and we've got to be very cognizant of what we're putting out into these airways, all of these negativities out here with this vaccine and whatever. I am not going to be vaccinated. And if I, uh, when it, if I want to be tested for COVID, I will go to my own private physician. So if y'all are on these jobs and y'all got to be very careful because they can use this information to deny you coverage because they can take that, they can run your information to see if you're predisposed to diabetes, high blood pressure, cancer, or whatever else they want to run on you with these tests because you don't know what they're doing with your, inf with your medical information. You don't know where they're storing it, how long they're keeping it, or what they're going to do with it. So do not, and I'm going to repeat myself, do not take any test it might be free because now they were telling us that if we go and we take the vaccines 
they're going to give us $40 for the first shot. We, if we go and we take the second shot, they'll give us $80. Oh, I told Raph, you can't even pay for a funeral for, um, with that type of money. <laughs> wow. You can't even buy an outfit to bury somebody with that type of money. So all these greedy niggers who want to run around here for $40 and $80 to go and get these, these these things here, and you don't even know what's in this vaccine, I said, good luck. I have a friend of mine who took it. All of her lymph nodes were swollen. Her, uh, that She told me, she said, everything on her was swollen. And I told her, I said, Rosalind, you just had thyroid surgery back in August of, um, of last year. Are you going to go out here and take this stuff there, and you're about, you don't even know what the heck it could do with your thyroid system, because she had a growth that was going that was obstructing her airways that she had to remove from her neck. And she said after she took the, the second shot, everything on her arm got swollen. Wow. So y'all have got to be very, y'all have got to question, don't go into these panic modes. And I agree because I listened to the, the Nation of Islam and um, the doctor that was on there as well as the podcast and the brother who was on there giving the information about what you need to take. And he is, and they were correct because a lot of these things, they're using fear with the media and on the jobs, they're using this fear tactic to tell people that you have to get tested. You have to take these vaccines or else and you, um, they're putting this out there. You don't have to do not, um, anything that you, um, you are an adult and it's your, you should have that choice. If you want to take it, it's entirely up to you. My choice is I'm not going to take it. I'm going to use the Pax Immune. I'm taking all of my other vitamins and everything else that I need to take to stay um to stay healthy. And I've always washed my hands and do everything that I normally am supposed to do anyway. Whenever I get home, for, I walk in from off the street. The first thing I do is I go to the sink and I wash my hands because I was touching move out here. So I make sure I take my shoes off at the door, wash my hands before I touch anything in the house. And that's something I always did before this COVID-19 came about. So all these people who are running around here with these hand sanitizing, hand sanitizing cannot take the place of soap and water. Hmm. So, you, okay. so you need to get in there and wash your hands and get all of that stuff off of your hands with some warm soapy water and uh, forget all this doggone hand sanitizer. But I see a lot of people do their hand sanitizer, and then they go and they stick their hands in some food and they start <laughs> eating it. I said, that's some stuff. <laughs> Hand sanitizing is not going to do, uh-uh, it's not going to cut it. That's the stuff that you can't wash. But anyway, that's my contribution for the <laughs> evening, and I'll sit back and I'll listen to the rest of your show. But I tell you, like I said, repeat, Elliot, these folks out there, do not take any testing on being offered on the job for anything related to your health. Go to your private physician and do it because these people are devils. We already know that, and you don't want them holding on to any medical information on you that they can use um, to deny you coverage or whatever else because later on down the line, your health insurance could spike up or whatever because they can say you predisposed to whatever else because they got your information and they pass it on to wherever because everybody's trying to cut down on their health care coverage and how much it's going to cost them. And this could be a means of them eliminating a lot of people to get you off so they do not have to um, contribute to your health insurance. <laughs> Thank you for your contribution, sister. Oh, you're so welcome, y'all. Y'all have a good evening. All right. Uh, you take care now. Okay. Um, you too, Richard. Richard, uh, <laughs> she raised a point because uh, if you recall, uh, that uh, that guy that was doing the stuff here, uh, uh, vaccinating people, they uh, said that they found out he turned his thing into a for-profit so he could sell the information. Do you remember that uh, that was the reason why they supposedly got rid of him? 
Yeah. Yeah, because he was planning to sell yeah. people's, uh, you know, their medical information. Right. Mm. Wow. Uh, you know what? It's 10 o'clock hour. We're going to wind the program down. I apologize for any of the calls that we didn't get to because we've uh, got a full board up here. But uh, we make sure that you get the double time the next time on the program. Before we leave today, I want to uh, give the lineup for Time for an Awakening Media. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting dialogue and topics and guests on African Perspectives. That's 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from 6 to 8 later on that evening. Acres of Diamonds with Brother Jihad Ahmed from 8 to 9. Black Therapy Central with host Dr. Maria Kambon. And Dr. Kamal Combine has been uh, her co-host here the past, I guess, about the past month. Um, Conversation Reparations and Cobra's program, the first and third Mondays of the month. And they ought to be starting again in <clears throat> the coming month of April. On Tuesday, 8 to 10, Black Reality Think Tank with Dr. William Rogers on Friday. Time for an awakening from 8 until. And on Saturdays from 4 to 6, Black Sister Talk with host Luanda Chambers. And from 7 to 9, later Saturday evening, the elders of Sankofa with the host, Brother Alfonso Watkins. And then time for an awakening is back on Sunday from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion, as always, and we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. Driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school They seem to be
Children to save the children.